handful of trash or dust, had slipped between two of the larger trucks, a bright yellow Penske rental and a 20-foot white van whose only logo was two massive breasts in spray paint, bold red. Running the odds that Unsub 40 had been coming for his multi-burger lunch once more and had recognized her from the mall and begun to follow. Not likely, but not impossible either. She tapped her Glock and moved closer to the trucks. No further sign of the shadow. Sachs continued into the lot, weaving through the vehicular graveyard. The wind snapped her jacket tail up and down and fanned her hair dramatically. Bad shooting mode. She pulled a rubber band from her pocket and bound the strands into a ponytail. A look around once more. The only living things visible were seagulls and pigeons, a curious and bold rat. Now, too, were the birds or rodents the movement she'd seen? Paper trash skidded along sidewalk and street, then soared. Maybe that was the intruder. Yesterday's New York Post. No sign of threat. Her phone hummed, startling her. She looked down. The ID showed Tom's name. As always, when he, not rhyme, called, she felt a tap in her heart that there might be bad medical news. She answered quickly. Tom? Hey, Amelia, just wondering if you're going to be staying here tonight, having dinner? She relaxed. No, I'm taking my mom to an appointment, and she's staying over at my place. Can I make a care package? She laughed, knowing it would be a very good care package indeed. But the logistics of collecting it, driving all the way to Rhymes, were problematic. No thanks, but really appreciate it. I... Her voice faded, as in the background through the speaker she heard words spoken by someone who sounded familiar. No. Couldn't be. Tom, is Mel there? Mel Cooper? Yes, he is. You want to talk to him? I sure as hell do. She said politely, please. A moment later. Hi, Amelia. Hey, Mel, um, what are you doing at Lincoln's? He vacationed me, though that's a verb I can see he's not very happy I used. I'm helping him with the Fromer case. God damn it, she said. A silence. Cooper put an end to it with, I, well, put Lincoln on. Uh-oh, the tech whispered. Look, Amelia, the thing is, and not speaker, headset, her finger disappeared into her hair and she scratched. A sign of the tension, frustration at the case, and anger. Rhyme. It was bad enough he'd quit the business. Now she had to deal with interference? There was a rustle through her speaker as Cooper or Tom placed the headset on Rhyme. Most conversations with him, of course, occurred via speakerphone. Not much chance for privacy. She didn't want anyone else to hear what she was about to say. Sachs, where- What's Mel doing there? I needed him for the Unsub-40 case. You stole him. A pause. I asked if he'd help me in the Fromer litigation. Rhyme countered. There's lab work we have to do. I didn't know you wanted him. She snapped. Queen's HQ wasn't doing everything it should have. I didn't know that. How would I know? You never said anything. And why would the subject even come up with you? She thought. Then she muttered, How could you just move him to a civilian case? I'm not even sure you can do that. He took some time off. He's not on duty. Oh, bullshit, Rhyme. Vacation? I'm running a murder. You were at the mall, Sachs. You saw what happened. My victim's as dead as yours. Lincoln Rhyme didn't play defense well. The difference is your escalator's not going to kill anyone else. No response to that. 
Well, I don't think I'll need him for much longer. How much is that, in terms of hours? Minutes, preferably? He sighed. We have to come up with a defendant in the next day or so. So days, then, she muttered, not hours. Minutes were off the table. He tried conciliation, though it dripped in sincerity. I'll make a call or two. Who are you working with at crime scene? Who I'm working with is not Mel. That's the problem. Look, I... This was from Mel Cooper, who had surely deduced what was happening. It's okay, Rhyme said to him. No, it wasn't. She fumed silently. Professional and personal partners for years, they never fought about matters close to the heart. But when it came to cases, tempers could flare. I'm sure you can run some questions by him. He's nodding. See, he's happy to do that. I can't run questions by him. He's not a clerk at Pep Boys, she added. On speaker. There was a click. Cooper was saying, Amelia, okay, Mel, listen. Ron will give you the details. I need some napkins analyzed for friction ridges and DNA, and we need the brand name of some varnish and the type of wood from sawdust samples. She added firmly, for rhyme's sake, not Cooper's. I need somebody really good, as good as you. That last was a bit petty, sure. She didn't care one iota. I'll make a call, Amelia. Thanks. Ron will send you the case number. Sure, of course. Then Sachs heard a woman's low voice. Is there anything I can do? Rhyme was saying. Now keep going with that analysis. Who was that? Sachs wondered. Then he said, Sachs, look, I have to go, Rhyme. She disconnected reflecting that it had been years since she'd hung up on him. She remembered when, during their first case. At that moment, Sachs realized that she'd been so focused on the phone call and on her anger at Rhymes vacationing the technician she needed that she'd lost awareness of her surroundings. A mortal sin for any street cop, especially since she'd seen what might have been a hostel. Then she heard them, gritty footsteps coming up behind her, close her hand went to her Glock, but it was too late to draw the weapon. The assailant was by then only a yard or so away. Chapter 12 So, didn't work. Juliet Archer was speaking of the experiment to pour Coca-Cola into the escalator, mimicking a clumsy shopper, and short-circuit the switch, opening the access panel. Yes, it did, Rhyme said drawing a frown from her and Cooper. The experiment was successful. It simply proved a supposition contrary to what we were hoping for, that Midwest Conveyance built an escalator that was not defective in regard to spilled liquids. The manufacturer had considered that riders might spill drinks on their upward or downward journey and had protected the electronics and motor with a piece of plastic that turned out to be a runoff shield. The liquids would flow into a receptacle, nowhere near the servo motor that released the pin to open the access panel. Onward, upward. Rhyme ordered Cooper to continue experimenting. He was to physically strike the switch and servo motor with various objects to simulate mechanical interference. Broom handle, hammer, shoe. No response. The deadly access panel would not open. Archer suggested the tech jump on the panel over and over again. Not a bad thought. And Rhyme told Cooper to do so though with Tom standing by on the floor below to spot the man if he fell. No effect. The locking pin wouldn't retract. The bracket would not shift in position. 
Nothing they could do would open the door, except pressing the button intended for that purpose. The button tucked safely away in a recessed receptacle behind a locked cover. Thinking, thinking. Bugs, Rhyme called. You can't put microphones in the Department of Investigation's office, Lincoln, Cooper said uneasily. My mistake, bugs is not correct. That's a very limited biological order. Hemiptera, aphid or cicada, for instance. I should have been more accurate. The broader insect of which bug is a subcategory. So I want insects, although a bug would do. Oh, Cooper was relieved, though obviously confused. Good, Lincoln, Archer said. A roach could have gotten inside and shorted out the switch or the motor, sure. Midwest Conveyance should have taken that into account and built in screens. They failed to do that, so the escalator's defective. Tom! Tom, where are you? The aide appeared. More soda? Dead insects. You found a bug in your soda? Impossible. Bugs again, Rhyme said with a scowl. After the explanation, Tom prowled the townhouse for critters. He was such a fastidious housekeeper that he had to extend the search to the storage area above the top floor ceiling and the basement to come up with a few pathetic fly corpses and a desiccated spider. No roaches? I'd love a roach. Oh, please, Lincoln. There's that Chinese place on the cross street. Could you just find me one or two roaches? Dad is fine. With a grimace, Tom went off on his small game hunt. But even rehydrated, the various creatures he came back with couldn't make the switch engage or short out the servo motor when they were placed against the contacts in the receptacle containing the plug. As Cooper and Archer discussed other possible reasons the escalator could be considered legally defective, Rhyme found himself staring at the coat rack on which was hung one of Sax's jackets. His mind wandered back to her hard words earlier. What the hell was she so upset about? She had no particular claim on Mel Cooper. And how was he supposed to know she was having trouble with the lab? Then his anger skidded around to himself for wasting time thinking about the frisson between him and Sachs. Back to work. Rhyme ordered Cooper to clean all the lubricant off the pin and bracket and then close it again, to see if the pin would not fully extend to the locking position, because the fitting was dry and therefore would be more likely to open because of random motion. Even without the grease, though, it secured the door perfectly when closed. God damn it! What had happened? Whitmore had said the product need not have been negligently, carelessly built, but it did have to be defective. They had to find some reason it had opened when it shouldn't have. He muttered, It's insect-proof, it's waterproof, it's shock-proof. Was there lightning when the accident happened? Archer checked the weather. No, clear day. A sigh. Okay, Mel, write down our paltry finds on the chart, if you would. The tech walked to a whiteboard and did so. The doorbell sounded and Rhyme looked at the monitor. Ah, our barrister. A moment later, lawyer Evers Whitmore entered, walking perfectly upright in a sharp navy blue suit, every button occupying every hole. He carried his anachronistic briefcase in one hand and a shopping bag in the other. Mr. Rhyme? He nodded. This is Juliet Archer. I'm an intern. She's helping on the case. Whitmore didn't even glance at her wheelchair or seem to be curious that the woman was as disabled as her mentor or how her condition might help or hinder the investigation. He nodded a greeting and turned to Rhyme. I have this. 
Mrs. Fromer asked me to deliver it to you, by means of thanks. She made it herself. From the shopping bag he extracted a plastic-wrapped loaf, tied with a red ribbon, and displayed it as if he were proffering plaintiff's Exhibit 1. She said it was zucchini bread. Rhyme wasn't sure what to make of the gift. Until recently, his clients had primarily been the NYPD, FBI, and other assorted law enforcers, none of whom sent him baked goods in gratitude. Yes, well, Tom, Tom, the aide appeared a moment later. Oh, Mr. Whitmore, the reluctance to use first names seemed to be contagious. Mr. Reston, here's a loaf of bread, the lawyer said, handing it over, from Mrs. Fromer. Rhyme said, refrigerated or something. Zucchini bread smells good, I'll serve it. That's all right, we don't need any. Of course I will. No, of course you won't. We'll save it for later. Rhyme had an ulterior motive for being contrary. He was thinking that the only way Juliet Archer would be able to eat any of the pastry was to have Tom feed her, and this would make her feel self-conscious. She was using the fingers of her right hand, but not her arm. The left, with its intricate bracelet, was of course strapped immobile to the wheelchair. However, Archer, who seemed to get Rhyme's strategy, and not much care for it, said in a firm voice, well, I'd like some. And Rhyme realized that he'd broken one of his own rules. He'd been coddling her. He said, good, I will too, and coffee, please. Tom blinked at the reversal and the politeness. I would care for some coffee as well, black, please, from Whitmore, if not inconvenient. Not at all. Any chance of a cappuccino? Archer asked. One of my specialties. And I'll bring some tea, Mel. The aide disappeared. Whitmore walked to the chart. He and the others looked it over. Wrongful death, pain and suffering, civil lawsuit. Location of incident, Heightsview Mall, Brooklyn. Victim, Greg Fromer, 44, clerk with pretty lady's shoes in mall. Store clerk, left Patterson Fuel Systems as director of marketing. Will attempt to show he would have returned to a similar or other higher income job. COD. Loss of blood, internal organ trauma. Cause of action, wrongful death, personal injury, tort suit. Strict products liability, negligence, breach of implied warranty. Damages, compensatory, pain and suffering, possibly punitive, to be determined. Possible defendants, Midwest Conveyance, Inc., manufacturer of escalator. Owner of property mall is located on, to be identified. Developer of mall, to be identified. Service maintaining escalator, if other than manufacturer, to be identified. General and subcontractors installing escalator, to be identified. Cleaning crew? Additional defendants? Facts relevant to accident. Access panel opened spontaneously. Victim fell into gears. Opened about 16 inches. Door weighed 42 pounds. Sharp teeth on front contributed to death injury. Door secured by latch. On springs. It popped open for unknown reason. Switch behind locked panel. On video, no one appeared to push switch. Reasons for failure? Switch or servo motor activated spontaneously. Why? Shorted out? Other electrical problem? Latch failed. Metal fatigue? Possible, not likely. Didn't seat properly. Insects, liquid, mechanical contact? Not likely factors. Lightning? Not likely factor.
No access to Department of Investigation or FDNY reports or records at this time. No access to failing escalator at this time, under quarantine by DOI. Archer explained to Whitmore that she'd found no other similar accidents in escalators made by any company, not just those in the product line of Midwest Conveyance. Then Mel Cooper gave the lawyer the details of their attempts to get the door to pop open spontaneously due to some outside factor or a flaw in the manufacturing of the unit. None of the theories worked on the mock-up, Rhyme told him. It doesn't look very promising, I must say, Whitmore offered. His voice sounded no more discouraged at this bad news than it would be enthusiastic had the conclusions gone in their favor. Still, Rhyme knew he would be troubled. Whitmore wouldn't be a man who took setbacks easily. Rhyme's eyes were scanning the scaffolding, up and down. He wheeled closer, staring, staring. He was vaguely aware of Tom arriving with a tray, the baked goods and beverages. Vaguely aware of conversation among Cooper and Archer and Whitmore. Vaguely aware of the lawyer's monotonous voice replying to something Archer had asked. Then silence. Lincoln, Tom's voice. It's defective, Rhyme whispered. What's that? His aide asked. It is defective, Whitmore said. Yes, Mr. Rhyme, the problem is we don't know how it's defective. Oh, yes, we do. Scared me a bit there, Amelia Sachs snapped, her voice sharp as the wind. Possibility that Perp might have been around. She removed her hand from the grip of her Glock. The person who'd come up behind her just after her mobile call to Rhyme was Ron Pulaski, not on Sub-40 or any other assailant. The young officer said, Sorry you were on the phone, didn't want to interrupt. Well, next time, circle wide, wave or something. You see anybody looking like our unsub nearby a few minutes ago? He's here? Well, he does like his White Castle, and I saw somebody shadowing me. You see anything? She repeated impatiently. Nobody like him, just a couple of kids. Looked like drug trans going down. I headed for them, but they took off. They might have been what she'd seen. Dust, seagull, Gangbangers swapping bills for C. Where were you? Tried the office in your mobile. She noted he'd changed clothes, swapping his uniform for street. He was looking around, too. After you left, I got a call. I had to talk to C.I. Harlem, the Gutierrez case. Took her a moment. Enrico Gutierrez, wanted in a homicide, possibly murder, more likely low-grade manslaughter. That had been one of the first cases Pulaski had run, with another detective in major cases. One drug dealer had killed another, so there was little energy to close the case. She guessed the confidential informant had stumbled on some leads and called Pulaski. She said, That old thing? Thought the DA'd given up. Hardly worth the time. Got the word to clean the docket. Didn't you see the memo? Sachs didn't pay attention to a lot of memos that circulated through one police plaza public relations, useless information, new procedures that would be rescinded next month. Reinvigorating cases like Gutierrez's didn't make a lot of sense, but on the other hand, it wasn't for line detectives or patrol officers to question. And if Pulaski wanted to move up in the world of policing, word from on high had to be heeded, and memos taken seriously. Okay, Ron, but lean toward unsub-40. If our boy's got fertilizer bombs and poisons he's playing with, in addition to hammers, this is our priority. And answer your damn phone. Got it. Sure. 
I'll fit in Gutierrez as best I can. She explained what Charlotte and the manager at White Castle had said, then added, I've canvassed most of the stores around here and gotten to half of the streets he'd take to subways, buses, or apartment complexes. She gave him the locations she'd been to and told him to keep going another few blocks. She told him, too, about the gypsy cab service where the unsub had possibly been spotted. I want you to follow up with them. We need that driver. Keep up pressure. I'll handle it. I've got to get my mother to an appointment. How's she doing? Hanging in there. Operations in a few days. Give her my best. A nod, then she returned to her Torino and fired up the big engine. In 20 minutes, she was cruising along the streets of her neighborhood. She felt a comfort as she headed into the pleasant residential hood of Carroll Gardens. The place had been much scruffier when she'd grown up here. Now it was the bastion of PWSM, people with some money. Not enough to afford this kind of square footage in Manhattan, and not willing to flee the city limits for suburbia. Gentrification didn't bother Amelia Sachs. She'd spent plenty of time in the bad parts of town and was glad to return home to a well-tended enclave with gardenias and unmolested flowerpots on the street. Families bicycling through the parks and a high saturation of aromatic coffee shops, though she wouldn't mind banishing hipsters to Soho and Tribeca. Well, look at this. A legitimate parking space, and only a block from her house. She could park practically anywhere if she left her NYPD placard on the dash but she found this wasn't a wise practice. One morning, she'd returned to her car to find pig spray-painted on the windshield. She didn't think the word was much in use anymore, and pictured the perpetrator as an unfortunate aging anti-Vietnam War protester. Still, the cleaning had cost her 400 bucks. Sachs parked and walked along the tree-lined street to her townhouse, which was classic Brooklyn. Brown brick, Window frames painted dark green, fronted by a small verdant strip of grass. She let herself in, locked the door behind her, and went into the front hallway, stripping off her jacket and unweaving the Glock holster embracing the weapon from her belt. She was a gun person, in her job and as a hobby, a champion in handgun competitions on police and private ranges. But at home, around family, she was discreet about displaying weapons. She set the Glock in the closet, on a shelf near her jacket, then stepped into the living room. Hi. She nodded a smile to her mother, who said goodbye to whomever she was speaking to on the phone and set the handset down. Honey. Slim, unsmiling Rose Sachs was a contradiction. This, the woman who would not speak to her daughter for months when she quit her fashion modeling job to go to the police academy. This, the woman who would not speak to her husband for even longer for believing he'd encouraged that career change. He had not. This, the woman whose moods would drive father and daughter out into the garage on Saturday mornings and afternoons to work on one of the muscle cars they both loved to soup up and drive. This, the woman who was there every minute for her husband, Herman, as he faded to cancer, and who made sure her daughter never wanted for a single thing attended every parent-teacher conference, worked two jobs when necessary, overcame her uncertainty about rhymes and her daughter's relationship, and quickly accepted, then fully embraced him, disability and all. Rose made her decisions in life according to immutable rules of propriety and logic that were often beyond anyone else's comprehension. Yet you couldn't help but admire the steel within her. Rose was contradictory in another way, too. 
her physical incarnation. On the one side, pale of skin from the weak stream of blood struggling through her damaged vessels, but fiery of eye. Weak, yet with a powerful hug and vice grip of a handshake, if she approved of you. I was serious, Amy. You don't have to take me. I'm perfectly capable. Yet she wasn't. And today she seemed particularly frail, short of breath and seemingly incapable of rising from the couch, a victim of the body's betrayal, which was how Saxe thought of her condition, since she was slim, rarely drank, and had never smoked. Not a problem. After we'll stop at Gristidi's. I didn't have a chance on the way here. I think there are things in the freezer. I need to go anyway. Then Rose was peering at her daughter with focused and, yes, piercing eyes. Is everything all right? The woman's perceptive nature was undiminished by her physical malady. Tough case. You're unsub-40? That's right. And made tougher by the fact that her partner had goddamn stolen the best forensic man in the city out from underneath her. For a civil case, no less, which wasn't nearly as urgent as hers. It was true that Sandy Fromer's life and her son's would be drastically altered without some compensation from the company who changed their lives so tragically. But they wouldn't die. They wouldn't be living on the street, while Unsub 40 might be planning to kill again. Tonight, five minutes from now. And more galling, she was the one who'd convinced him to help the widow setting him on his typically obsessive-compulsive trail of the defendant who'd been responsible for Greg Fromer's death. Your initial reaction is going to be to say no, but just hear me out, deal? Sachs was examining the contents of the fridge and making a grocery list when the doorbell chimed, the first tone high, the second low. She glanced at her mother, who shook her head. Neither was Sachs expecting anyone. She walked toward the front door, not bothering to collect her weapon, on the theory that most doers don't ring doorbells. Also, she kept a second Glock, a smaller one, the Model 26, in a battered, faded shoebox beside the front door, one round chambered and nine behind it, a second mag nestling nearby. As she approached the door, she removed the lid, turned the box to grabbing position. Sachs looked out through the peephole and froze to statue. My God. She believed a gasp issued from her throat. Her heart was pounding fiercely. A glance down and she replaced the lid on the camouflaged weapon case. Ben stood completely still for a moment, staring at her hollow eyes in a convex mirror set in a gilt frame on the wall. Breathing deeply. Once. Twice. Okay. She unlatched the door. Standing on the small stone porch was a man of about her age, lean. His handsome face had not seen sun for a long time. He was wearing jeans and a black T-shirt under a denim jacket. Nick Corelli had been Sax's lover before Rhyme. They'd met on the force, both cops, though in different divisions. They'd lived together. They'd even talked about getting married. Sax had not seen Nick in years but she remembered vividly the last time they'd been together in person. A courthouse in Brooklyn. They'd exchanged brief glances, and then the bailiffs had led him away, shackled, for transfer to state prison to begin his sentence for robbery and assault. Chapter 13 
It is an exciting concept, said Evers Whitmore in a tone that belied the descriptive participle. Which didn't mean he wasn't truly ecstatic. It was just so very hard to read him. He was referring to Rhymes' theory of the escalator's defect. It didn't matter whether the access panel opened because of metal fatigue, bad lubrication, a curious roach shorting out the servo motor, even someone's pushing the switch accidentally, or an act of God. The defect was in the fundamental design of the unit, that if the door opened for any reason, the motor and gears should have stopped immediately. An automatic cutoff switch would have saved Greg Fromer's life. Had to be cheap to install, Juliet Archer said. I would imagine so, Whitmore said. Then he tilted his head and looked at the unit in Rhymes' hallway carefully. I have another theory. What does the access panel weigh? From Rhyme and Archer in unison, 42 pounds. Not that heavy, the lawyer continued. Archer. The spring was a convenience, not a necessity. Rhyme liked this one, too. Double-barrel legal theories. I should never have added a spring. Workmen could unlatch the panel and use a hook to pull it up, or just lift it. Good. The attorney got a call on his mobile and listened for some time, asking questions and jotting notes in his perfectly linear handwriting. When he disconnected, he turned to Rhyme, Archer, and Cooper. I think we may have something here, but to understand it fully, you need some background in the law. Not again. Rhyme nonetheless lifted a please continue eyebrow and the lawyer launched into yet another lecture. Law in America is a complicated creature, like a platypus, Whitmore said, removing and cleaning his glasses once again. Rhyme could only think of them as spectacles. Part mammal, part reptile, part who knows what else. Rhyme sighed. Whitmore missed the impatience waft and kept up the narrative. Eventually, he got to his point. The Fromer case would be largely determined by case law, not legislative statutes, and the court would look to precedent, prior similar decisions, to decide if Sandy Fromer could win a judgment against Midwest. With what hovered near enthusiasm in his voice, Whitmore said, My paralegal, Ms. Schroeder, found no cases where escalators were considered defective because of the lack of interlocks, but she did unearth several cases of heavy industrial machinery, printing presses and die stampers, in which liability was found when the devices continued to work after access panels were opened. The facts are close enough to support a finding that Mr. Fromer's injury occurred because of a design defect. Archer asked, Is it possible to find escalators made by other companies that do have an interlock switch? A good question, Miss Archer, also researched by Ms. Schroeder. I'm afraid, though, that the answer is no because Midwest's conveyance seems to be the only escalator manufacturer on earth that makes a product with the ill-chosen feature of a pop-up access panel. However, she did find an elevator manufacturer whose cars have a cutoff to apply the brakes in the event the car moves when a worker is in the shaft with the access panel open. And that would be a good case to cite, Archer said, since escalator sounds a lot like elevator. Impressing Whitmore once again, apparently. It does indeed. I found there's an art to subliminally guiding the jury to favor your client. Now, again, I don't intend to go to trial, but I'll include a reference to those cases when I contact Midwest Conveyance about settlement. Now we have our theory. A sound one. A good one. I'll spend the next few days preparing the complaint. After we file, I'll subpoena the company's engineering records, history of complaints, safety reports, 
If we're lucky, we might find a CBA memo that shoots them in the foot. Archer asked what that was. Apparently, her TV show legal education had failed her on this point. As for Rhyme, he had no clue either. Whitmore added, Cost-benefit analysis. If a company estimates that 10 customers a year will die because of its carelessness in building a product, and that it will have to pay out wrongful death judgments of $10 million in compensation, but that it will cost $20 million to fix the problem ahead of time, the manufacturer may choose to release the product anyway, because it's economically more sound. Companies actually make that calculus? Archer asked. Even though they're signing death warrants for those 10 people? You may have heard of U.S. Auto? Not too long ago, an engineer wrote an internal memo that there could be gasoline leaks resulting in catastrophic fires in a very small percentage of sedans. It would cost X amount to fix it. The management decided it was cheaper to pay the wrongful death or personal injury judgments. And they went with that decision. Of course, the company's out of business now. The memo came to light and they never recovered from the public relations disaster. The moral of the story, of course, is, Archer said, to make the ethically right choice. Whitmore said, to never commit decisions like that to paper. Rhyme wondered if he was joking, but there was no smile accompanying the words. Whitmore continued, I'm assembling information on Mr. Fomer's earning potential, how he would have returned to a white-collar job like he used to have, managerial, to increase our claim for future earning potential. I'll take depositions from the wife and his friends, former fellow workers, expert medical witnesses on the pain and suffering he experienced. I want to hit Midwest with everything we can. A case like this, I believe they'll do whatever they must to avoid trial. His phone hummed and he glanced at the screen. It's Ms. Schroeder in my office. Maybe some new cases we can use. He answered. Yes? Rhyme noticed that the attorney had stopped moving. Completely. Not a twist of neck, shift of weight. He stared at the floor. You're sure? Who told you? Yes, they're credible. At last, a splinter of emotion crossed the man's face, and it wasn't one of pleasure. He disconnected. We have a problem. He looked around the room. Is there any way we could set up a Skype call? And I need to do so immediately. You have a minute? Nick Corelli asked Amelia Sachs. She was thinking, manically, because of her shock at his presence, how odd it was that he didn't look much different all these years later, all these years spent in prison. Really, only his posture had changed. Still in good shape otherwise, he was now slouching. I, I don't, stammering and hating herself for it. I was going to call. Thought you'd hang up. Would she have? Of course, probably. I came by, gave it a shot. Are you, Sachs began, and thought, finish your goddamn sentences. He laughed, that low, happy laugh she remembered. Took her right back, a wormhole to the past. Nick said, no, I didn't escape. Good behavior. Called me a model prisoner. Parole board unanimous. Summoning reason at last. If she got rid of him fast, maybe he'd try to come back later. Hear him out now, be done with it. She stepped outside and closed the door. I don't have much time. I've got to get my mother to the doctor's. Shit. Why say that? Why tell him anything? His brow furrowed. What's wrong? 
some heart issues. Is she? I really don't have a lot of time, Nick. Sure, sure. Looking her over fast, then back to her eyes. I read about you in the paper. You got a partner now. The guy used to be head of IR. Investigation Resources, the old name of the division that Crime Scene was part of. I met him a couple of times. Legend. Is he really? He's disabled, yes. Silence. He seemed to sense niceties were clinkers. Look, I need to talk to you. Tonight, maybe tomorrow. Could we get coffee? No, gate closed, window shut, water over dam, under bridge. Tell me now. Money, a recommendation for a job. He was never getting back on the force. A felony conviction precluded that. Okay, I'll make it fast, Abe. Using his pet name for her, grated. He took a breath. I'll just lay it all out for you. The thing is about my conviction, the jacking assault, you know all the details. Of course she did. The crime was a bad one. Nick had been busted for being behind a string of hijackings of merchandise and prescription drug shipments. In the last one, before he was caught, he'd beaten a driver with his pistol. The Russian immigrant, father of four, had been in the hospital for a week. He leaned forward, eyes drilling into hers. He whispered, I never did it, Aim. Never did a single thing I was arrested for. Her face flushed, hearing this, and her heart began throbbing. She glanced back through the curtained window that bordered the door, no sign of her mother. She'd also looked away to buy a moment to wrestle with what she'd just heard. Finally, she turned back. Nick, I don't know what to say. Why is this coming up now? Why are you here? And her heart continued to beat frantically, like the wings of a bird cupped in your hands. She thought, could it be true? I need your help. Not a soul in the world is going to help me, but you, Aim. Don't call me that. That's the old life. That's not now. Sorry, I'll tell you fast. I'll explain. A lengthy breath, in and out. Then, Donnie was the one working the hijackings. Not me. Nick's younger brother. She could hardly comprehend this. The quiet one of the two siblings was a dangerous criminal. She recalled that the hijacker had worn a ski mask and never been identified by the truck driver. Nick continued. He had his problems, you know. The drugs, drinking, sure, I remember. The two brothers were so very different, not even resembling each other. Donnie was almost rat-like in manner and nature, Sachs remembered thinking back then, feeling uneasy with the spontaneous image. In addition to the looks, Nick got the confidence, Donnie the uncertainty and anxiety, and the need to numb both of those. She tried to engage him in conversation when they went out to dinner, tell jokes, ask about his continuing education classes, but he'd grow shy and evasive, and occasionally hostile, suspicious. She believed he was envious of his elder brother for having a former fashion model girlfriend. She remembered, too, how he would disappear into the men's room and return buoyant and talkative. Nick continued. The evening it all went down, the bust. Remember you were on night watch? She nodded, as if she could ever forget. I got a call from Mom. She thought Donnie'd started using again. I asked around and heard he might be meeting somebody near the Third Street Bridge. Had some deal going down. The ancient bridge, over a hundred years old, spanned the Gowanus, a sludgy canal in Brooklyn. I knew something bad was going to happen if it hadn't already. That hood? Had to be. I headed over there right away. 
I didn't see Donnie, but around the corner was the truck. The semi parked, the doors open. The driver was on the ground, bleeding from his ears. The truck was empty. I called 911 from a payphone, anonymous, reported it. Then I went straight to Donnie's apartment. There he was, stoned, and he wasn't alone. He was now staring into her eyes. His were fierce. She had to look down. Delgado, remember him? Vinny Delgado? Vaguely, a gangbanger in BK, Bay Ridge maybe. Not really connected, not high up anyway. A piece of scum acting like the Godfather, even though his base of operation was a dive of a magazine tobacco store. Dead, she also believed, executed for encroaching on a serious crew's turf. He got Donnie to work for him, helping Delgado's crew jack and move some stuff off trucks, get it to the fences, middlemen, promised Donnie all the lewds and coke he wanted. Sachs was furiously assessing, then told herself, stop. Truth or lies, none of this was her business. Delgado and his minder told me there was a problem. Apparently one of the five families wasn't happy about the jackings Delgado had been running, the Gowanus in particular. They'd had their eye on that truck. Huge score of prescription drugs, remember? Delgado said somebody needed to take the fall. He gave me two options. Point the finger at Donnie, in which case Delgado would have to take him out since he'd spill everything in prison. Or me, somebody who could do the time and keep his mouth shut. A shrug. How's that for a choice? You didn't contact OCT? He laughed. The NYPD Organized Crime Task Force was good. But it was good at marshalling big cases against high-profile mobsters. They could have done little to keep Donnie Corelli alive. What did Donnie say? When he sobered up, I talked to him. I told him what Delgado had said. He was crying, gone all to pieces, what you'd think. He was desperate, begging me to save him. I said I'd do it for him and Mom, but it was his last chance. He had to get clean. What happened then? I took some of the merch Donnie had and some money, threw it in my car, wiped the piece Donnie had, the one he'd beaten the driver with, and got my own prints on it. Then made another anonymous call, reported my tag number being at the scene. Detectives got me the next day at the station house. I just confessed. That was it. You gave up everything? Your whole life? Your years on the force, just like that? He whispered harshly. It was my brother. I didn't have any choice. Then his face softened. You remember what we talked about then? About me being on the force, not sure about it? She did. Nick didn't have blue in his soul. He wasn't a cop the way she was, or her father was, or Lincoln Rhyme had been. He was biding his time until he could find something else, a business, a restaurant. He'd always wanted a restaurant. I wasn't meant to be a cop. I was going to get out sooner or later. I could do the time and live with that. She thought back. And Donnie did get clean, right? After he'd gone to jail, Sachs had stayed in touch with the family, though not Nick. She'd attended Harriet Corelli's funeral, and Donnie had indeed been sober there and every other time she'd seen him. She and the younger brother fell out of touch, however, after she met Lincoln Rhyme. He did, for a while, but it didn't stay that way. He didn't do any more work for Delgado that I heard, but he went back on C and then H. He died a year ago. Oh, no. I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Overdose. 
He hid using pretty good, but they found him in a hotel in East Harlem. Been there for three days. Nick's voice caught. I did a lot of thinking inside, Amelia. I thought I did the right thing, and I guess I did. I kept Donnie alive for a few years, but I decided I want to prove I'm innocent. I don't care about a pardon or anything like that. I just want to be able to tell people I didn't do it. Donnie's gone. Mom's gone. I don't have any more family. Might be disappointed to hear the truth. Delgado got capped years ago. His crew's gone. And I want you to know I'm innocent, too. She saw what was coming. He continued. There's evidence in the case file that'll exculpate me. Contacts, detectives' notes, addresses, things like that. There'll be people out there still who know I didn't do it. You want the file? I do. Nick? He touched her arm lightly and fast. His hand receded. You've got every right to walk back inside and close the door, never see me again after what I did. And the sin wasn't just the crime. What he also did was cut everything off from her, from the instant of his arrest. Yes, he'd done it to protect her. He was, by his admission, a crooked cop. And waves spread from people like that, lapping against anyone nearby. She, an ambitious rising star on the force, might have been tainted if they'd remained in contact. So, she asked herself, walk right back inside and close the door? She said, I have to think about it. That's all I'm asking. She steadied herself for an embrace or a kiss, prepared to resist. But all Nick did was stick his hand out and shake hers, as if they were business associates who'd just concluded a successful real estate deal. Wish Rose the best, if you want to tell her it was me here. He turned and strode away. She watched him go. After half a block, he looked back at her fast, and on his face was that boyish smile she remembered so clearly from so many years ago. A nod. Then he was gone. Chapter 14 Attorney Evers Whitmore logged onto one of Rhyme's computers and loaded Skype. He typed in an account, and Skype's electronic da-da-da tone of dialing filled the room. Rhyme moved closer so that both he and Whitmore were visible to the callee, as they could see in the bottom right-hand corner of the monitor. Juliet? Rhyme asked. Do you want to move closer? She was out of view of the webcam. No, she said, and remained where she was. A moment later, an image fluttered onto the screen. A balding man in a white shirt with rolled-up sleeves was glancing at some papers in front of him. The desk he sat behind was paved with stacks of documents. He looked up at the webcam. You're Evers Whitmore? That's right. Attorney Holbrook? Yes. Now I will tell you that also present are Lincoln Rhyme and to my right, though not visible, Juliet Archer, who are consultants working with me. Cooper and Tom were absent. Whitmore had thought it best an NYPD detective and a civilian with no connection to the case might hamper the conversation that was about to happen. Accordingly, I'm invoking the work product doctrine. Are you willing to accept that they are cloaked by the attorney-client privilege as well? Holbrook looked up, handed a document to someone who had fire-engine red nails, and then returned to the lens of the camera. Sorry, what? Whitmore repeated his request. Yeah, sure, Holbrook said. There was a tone of whatever in his voice. 
even though he was chief general counsel of Midwest Conveyance, maker of the deadly escalator, the man seemed far from either defensive or aggressive. Distracted, mostly. And Rhyme knew why. The attorney concentrated on his webcam once more. Been expecting to hear from somebody who represented Greg Fromer and his family? You're the attorney of record? I am? I've heard about you, Holbrook said. Your reputation, of course. Trans-Europe Airlines? B&H Pharmaceuticals? You brought them to their knees. Whitmore gave no response. Now, Attorney Holbrook, Damien's fine. Good luck with that, Rhyme thought. Whitmore, yes, you understand why I'm calling? The press conference was a half hour ago. I assumed the attorney representing Fromer's family would hear, and therefore I'd hear. Holbrook turned to the side and said, I'll be right there, a few minutes, get them some coffee. Back to the camera. Do you have any theories of defect? We do, Holbrook offered. Design flaw, no interlock to shut off the motor if the access panel opened accidentally. Whitmore glanced toward Rhyme, then returned to the webcam. I'm not prepared to discuss our theories. Well, that's a good one, and I'll go one further. The spring-loaded access panel. The lawyer actually chuckled. Our design department added that because of workers' comp claims from maintenance people who claimed lifting the door pulled out their backs. Probably spurious. But we went with a spring anyway. And you'll probably find out after the accident, our safety team went to every location that had escalators with spring-loaded access panels installed and detached the springs before the city inspection. I know, sir, this is a case made in heaven for your client. You could have introduced post-accident modification to show admission of defect on our part. Under other circumstances, we would have written a check, and a big one. Mrs. Fromer's going through a rough time, I'm sure, and my heart goes out to her. But, well... You did hear the news. I'm sorry. My paralegal hasn't gotten to bankruptcy court yet. We haven't read the filings. It's Chapter 7. Full liquidation. We've been in trouble for a while. Chinese competitors. Germans, too. Way of the world. The accident, your client's husband, well, that accelerated our decision, sure. But our bankruptcy was going to happen in the next month or the month after anyway. Whitmore said to Archer and Rhyme, in filing for bankruptcy, Midwest is protected by an automatic stay. That means we can't sue unless we go to court and have the stay lifted. Back to the screen and Holbrook. I'm hoping for some courtesy information here. Holbrook shrugged. I'm not going to throw up walls if I don't have to. What do you need to know? Who's your insurer? Sorry, don't have one. We're self-insured. Whitmore's face might have registered dismay at this. Rhyme couldn't tell. The in-house counsel continued. And I have to tell you, there's nothing left, acid-wise. We've got probably a million in receivables and 40 million in hard assets. Zero cash, zero stock, versus 900 million debt, most of it secured. Even if you get the bankruptcy stay lifted and the judge agrees you can file the suit and you win, which I'm sure you know the receiver will fight tooth and nail, you'll walk away with a judgment that won't even cover your photocopy costs, sir. And that'd be two or three years from now. Whitmore asked. Who would have maintained the escalator? I'm afraid to say, for your sake, we did. Our parts and service division. No outside maintenance company for you to bring an action against. Was the mall involved at all with the unit? No, other than superficial cleaning. As to the contractors who installed the units, 
I can tell you our safety team inspected every unit carefully and signed off on them. It all falls on our shoulders. Look, sir, I truly am sorry for your client. But there's nothing here for you. We're gone. I've worked for Midwest Conveyance my whole life. I was one of the founders. I rode the company down to the end. I'm broke. But you and your loved ones are alive, Rhyme thought. He asked, Why do you think the access panel opened? The lawyer shrugged. Take 10,000 car axles. Why do they work fine except one, which cracks at 80 miles an hour? Why are 20 tons of lettuce perfectly harmless, but a few heads from the same field are contaminated with E. coli? In our escalator? Who knows? Something mechanical about the latch, most likely. Maybe the bracket on the access panel was mounted with a screw made in China and of substandard steel. Maybe the retracting pin missed tolerance but wasn't rejected by the quality control robot because of a software hiccup. Could be a thousand things. Fact is, the world's not perfect. You know, sometimes I'm amazed that things we buy and put in our homes and stake our lives on work as well as they do. A pallid smile. Now our outside counsel's arrived. I have to meet with them. It's no consolation, sir, but there are a lot of people here who will have many a sleepless night about Greg Fromer. The screen went dark. Archer snapped. Was that bullshit? No, it's an accurate statement of the law. There's nothing we can do? The lawyer, completely unemotional, was jotting notes in his microscopic writing, all block letters, Rhyme noted. I'll check the filings and court documents, but he's not going to lie to us about confirmable information at hand. Under bankruptcy law, a judge will sometimes lift a stay if there's an outside insurance company, one that could pay a liability claim like ours. Being self-insured, though, no stay. The company's immune, judgment-proof. He said we could try other defendants, Archer said. Rhyme pointed out, though he wasn't very damn encouraging about that. Whitmore said, I'll keep looking, but... A nod at the blank screen. Mr. Holbrook had every incentive to try to blame someone else for his company's reputation, if nothing else. He didn't see a likely cause of action, and I don't either. This is a classic product liability situation, and we're helpless to pursue it. I'll go see Mrs. Fromer and give her the news in person. The lawyer rose, fixed both buttons on his suit jacket. Mr. Rhyme, please submit a bill for your hours. I'll pay that myself. I thank you all for your time and effort. It would have been a fruitful experience. Sax, here's the thing. I'm out of the business. Well, the criminal business. After dropping her mother back at the townhouse following her doctor's appointment, Sax had driven to Manhattan and was alone in their war room at 1PP. Her task to make sense of the evidence in the unsub-40 case and to prod the new officer at the crime scene unit an older woman technician who was not as good as Mel Cooper, to complete the analysis she needed. The examination of the White Castle napkins that might contain their perps' friction ridges and additional DNA, and to identify the sawdust and varnish from the earlier scenes. Well, that was her ostensible mission. In fact, she was staring out the window, recalling Rhyme's words to her of a month ago. I'm out of the business. She'd argued with him, tried to pry open the clamshell of his determination. But he'd been adamant. 
irritatingly deaf to the bullet points of her side of the debate. Everything comes to an end, her father had told her one crisp, glary Saturday afternoon as he took a breather from their joint project of installing a rebuilt carburetor in their Camaro. It's the way of the world, and it's better to accept that. Dignify, don't demean. Herman Sachs was, at the time, on a leave of absence from the NYPD, undergoing a series of cancer treatments. Sachs accepted almost everything the calm, shrewd, and humorous man had taught and told her. But she furiously declined to buy either of those points, the ending and the acceptance, despite the fact that he proved himself right, at least as to the first, by dying six weeks later. Forget it. Forget Lincoln. You've got work to do. Staring at the evidence charts. Crime scene. 151 Clinton Place, Manhattan, construction site. Adjacent to 40 degrees north, nightclub. Offenses. Homicide, assault. Victim. Todd Williams, 29, writer, blogger, social topics. COD. Blunt force trauma, probably ball-peen hammer, no brand determined. Motive, robbery. Credit, debit cards not yet used. Evidence, no friction ridges. Blade of grass. Trace, phenol, motor oil. Profile of suspect, unknown subject 40. Wore checkered jacket, green, Braves baseball cap. White male, tall, 6'2 to 6'4. Slim, 140 to 150 pounds. Long feet and fingers. No visual of face. Crime scene. Heights View Mall, Brooklyn. Relevance to case. Attempted apprehension of subject. Not successful. Additional elements of profile of suspect. Possibly carpenter or works in trades. Eats large amounts of food. Likes White Castle Restaurant. Lives in Queens or other connection with Burrow. High metabolism. Evidence. DNA. No CODIS match. No friction ridges sufficient for ID. Shoe print, likely unsubs, size 13 Reebok Daily Cushion 2.0. Soil sample, likely from unsub, containing crystalline aluminosilicate clays. Montmorillonite, illite, vermiculite, chlorite, kaolinite. Additionally, organic colloids. Substance is probably humus, not native to this portion of Brooklyn. Dinitrianoline used in dyes, pesticides, explosives. Ammonium nitrate, fertilizer, explosives. With oil from Clinton Place scene, possibly constructing bomb? Additional phenol, precursor in making plastics like polycarbonates, resins and nylon, aspirin, embalming fluid, cosmetics, ingrown toenail cures. Unsub has large feet, so nail problems? Talc, mineral oil, paraffinum liquidum, huile mineral. Zinc stearate, stearic acid, lanolin, lanoline, cetyl alcohol, triethanolamine, PEG-12 lorate, mineral spirits, methylparaben, propylparaben, titanium dioxide. Makeup? No brand determination. Analysis to return. Shaving of metal, microscopic, steel, probably from sharpening knife. Sawdust, type of wood to be determined, from sanding, not sawing. Organochlorine and benzoic acid. Toxic. Insecticides? Weaponized poisons? 
Acetone, ether, cyclohexane, natural gum, cellulose. Probably varnish. Manufacturer to be determined. Napkins from White Castle, probably unsubs. Will resubmit for additional evidence. Stains suggest unsub drank several beverages. Crime scene. White Castle Restaurant, Astoria Boulevard, Astoria, Queens. Relevance to case. Unsub eats here regularly. Additional elements of profile of suspect. Eats 10 to 15 sandwiches at a time. Had been shopping at least once when ate here. Carried white plastic bag, something heavy inside. Metallic? Turned north and crossed the street. Toward bus? Train? No sign he owned, drove automobile. Witnesses didn't get good view of face, probably no facial hair. White, pale, maybe balding or crew cut. Used a car service on Astoria Boulevard around day of Williams's murder. Awaiting word from owner of Gypsy Cab Company. From what was found at the scenes, Sachs and Pulaski had concluded unsub-40 might be a tradesman. But even if so, did workers carry around tools late at night? especially a rare one like the ball-peen hammer he'd used to kill Todd Williams? And if a tool like that had nothing to do with his job, his carrying it suggested design, a perp on the hunt for a victim. But why? What the hell are you up to, Mr. Forty? How much money could Todd Williams have had on him to justify killing? You didn't use any of his credit or debit cards or sell them? They would have shown up by now. Stolen plastic is a very short shelf life. He didn't try to suck his bank account dry. Williams had been straight for the most part, but she'd learned from friends of a few gay encounters. There was a rough trade club about three blocks from the construction site where he was killed, yet extensive canvassing of the place uncovered no evidence that Williams had ever been there. Any other reasons for the unsub to kill you? Williams had been a former programmer by profession, and now he wrote about social issues on his blog, but there was nothing controversial that she'd seen. Environment, privacy. And as for the bomb-making and poisoning theories related to terrorism, possibly, the evidence was sketchy, and her instincts said those were dead ends. Maybe the motive was that which was the least helpful to investigators. Williams had witnessed some other crime, and the lean perp, maybe a hitman, maybe a professional burglar, had seen him and clipped him. And yet, and yet, come on, Rhyme. She needed somebody to brainstorm with. But it can't be you now, can it? Out of the business. And what was up with Ron Pulaski? He'd been acting particularly odd. He'd questioned the wisdom of Rhyme's retirement, firmly calling his boss on the decision. It's crazy, to which he received back. I've decided, rookie. Why bring it up for the thousandth time? Quit asking. Was this his distraction? Though maybe Ron's mood had nothing to do with rhyme. She again considered illness in the family, or the officer himself, his head injury. Then, too, he was a husband and father, trying to make ends meet on a patrolman's salary. God bless. Her phone buzzed. She looked down and felt a prickle along her scalp. Nick. Sachs didn't answer. She closed her eyes. After the humming stopped, she glanced at the phone. He'd left no message. What to do, what to do. 
In days past, Sachs might have wandered down to the file room at 1PP, or depending on where the people of the state of New York v. Nicholas J. Corelli files were stored, driven to the archives in New Jersey. In either case, she might have dawdled outside the room downstairs, or spent the drive, pondering Nick's request. Yes or no? Now, with every case file for the past 25 years scanned and sitting in a big fat database somewhere, this debate occurred here at her desk as she looked over a sliver of vessel-filled New York Harbor, leaning back in lazy posture, staring at the screen. The propriety of downloading the file? No objections, she could see. Sachs was an active-duty officer, so she had legitimate access to all files, and there were no regulations about sharing them with civilians in closed cases. And if Nick found something that proved his innocence, he could come to her, and she could tell the brass she decided to look into the matter on her own initiative. And then, this was non-negotiable in her heart, hand the matter over to an internal affairs investigator and step away entirely. No, legality wasn't really the issue. Some endeavors, of course, could be completely legal, yet stunningly bad ideas. Nick's other options would be to find a lawyer to reopen the case and petition the court for review. Though Sachs had to admit, her handing him the file would make his quest a thousand times easier. Yet why had it fallen to her to help him? Their years together, not so many in number, but intense, consuming, flashed past. She couldn't deny that the memories were tugging her in the direction of doing what he'd asked of her. But there was a broader issue. Even if she hadn't known him, his story was compelling. Earlier this evening, she'd looked up Vincent Delgado. Unlike high-level organized crime figures who were essentially businessmen, Delgado was a megalomaniac, probably borderline psychotic, vicious, prone to torture. He would have killed Donnie Corelli without blinking an eye, might even have threatened to kill their mother, Harriet, if Nick didn't roll over to the Gowanus jacking. Yes, if everything he said was true, he was guilty of obstructing justice, though the statute of limitations would have run out a long time ago. So he was, in all ways, innocent. Yes? No? What bad could come of it? Sachs turned from the computer to the evidence boards on the unsub-40 case. And what would you say, Rhyme, if you were here? What insights? But you're not here. You're hanging with the ambulance chasers. Then her eyes slipped to the unblinking cursor. Archived file request. Case file name, People v. Corelli. Case file number, 24-543676F. Requesting Officer Shield, D5885. Passcode. Yes? No? What bad could come of it? She asked herself again. Sachs removed her hands from the keyboard, closed her eyes, and leaned back in the chair once more. Chapter 15 Juliet Archer and Lincoln Rhyme were alone in the parlor. The notes from the now-defunct Fromer v. Midwest Conveyance the hard copies of the pictures Sachs and Cooper had snapped, the printouts from Archer's research, sat in ordered rows. Even in defeat, Mel Cooper was as organized as an operating room nurse. 
Earlier today, upon hearing that the case was over, Rhyme indulged himself with an encouraging thought, that he was relieved of the burden of mentoring his student. Yet now he wasn't as buoyed by that idea as he initially was. He found himself saying to her, There are a few things you could help with if you're interested, a couple of other projects I'm working on. Not as intriguing as a case. Research, esoteric elements of forensics, academia. But still... She maneuvered her chair to face him, and her countenance suggested she was surprised. You didn't think I was going to leave, did you? No, I was just saying. An expression he detested when coming from someone else's lips, and he liked it no more now that he'd uttered it. Or you were hoping? Her smile was coy. Your presence was helpful. His highest compliment, though she wouldn't know that. It's unfair what happened. No money, no recourse for Sandy Fromer. Rhyme said, but that's your situation. A nod at the wheelchair. Because her disability stemmed from the tumor, not an accident, she had no one to recover settlement money from. I was lucky. I got a large settlement from the construction company that built the scaffolding the pipe fell from. Pipe? Is that what happened? He laughed. I was playing rookie. At the time, I was head of the crime scene unit, but I couldn't help keep from searching a scene myself. A killer was murdering police officers. I had to get down in the site and dig for evidence. I was sure I could find the clue that would lead to him, and no one else could. A good example of the adage, one's character is one's fate. Heraclitus, she said, her eyes amused. They'd be so proud, the good sisters of Immaculata by remembering something they taught me. Of course, fate sometimes has nothing to do with who you are and what you do. Two assassination attempts on Hitler. They both were perfectly planned, and they both failed. There's fate for you. No design, no justice. Sometimes you get the golden apple. Sometimes you're screwed. Either way, you cope. Archer nodded. Something I've been wondering. Yes, it's true. Rhyme announced in a bold voice. An inhydrin solution can indeed be prepared in a mixture of nonpolar solvents. The exhibit is immersed in the working solution and allowed to develop in dark, humid conditions for two to three days, avoiding high temperatures. That's a quotation from the Department of Justice's fingerprint manual. I tested it. They're accurate. She fell silent as she looked around the lab, congested with equipment and tools and instruments. Finally, you're avoiding the question that's coming, aren't you? Why I quit working for the police. Archer smiled. Answer or not, just curious. He gestured with his working hand toward one of the whiteboards in the far corner of the room, snubbing them with their backs. He said, that was a case about a month ago. There's a notation at the bottom of the board. Suspect deceased. Prosecution terminated. That's why you quit? Yes. So you made a mistake and somebody died? Inflection is everything. Archer's comment ended in a lazy question mark. She might have been asking legitimately if this was the case, or she might have been dismissing what had happened and chiding him for backing away from a profession in which death was a natural part of the process. A human's ceasing to exist is, of course, the prime mover of a homicide case. 
A corollary is the possible death of the suspect during apprehension, or occasionally a lethal injection gurney. But Rhyme gave a shallow laugh. No, in fact, the opposite happened. Opposite? He adjusted the chair slightly. They were now facing each other. I didn't make a mistake at all. I was 100% accurate. He sipped from the tumbler of Glenmorangie that Tom had poured ten minutes before. He nodded toward the liquor and then turned to Archer, but again she declined a beverage. He continued. The suspect, a businessman from Garden City named Charles Baxter. You ever hear of him? No. The case was in the news. Baxter defrauded a few rich folks out of about ten million, but frankly, they would have hardly noticed. It's all about the decimal point, of course. Who really cared? But that's not the prosecutor's or my call. Baxter broke the law, and the assistant district attorney brought the case, got me on board to help find the cash and analyze the physical evidence. Handwriting, ink, GPS logs that let us follow him to banks, trace evidence from where the meetings took place, false identity documents, soil from where money was buried. It was easy to run. I found plenty of admissible evidence to support grand theft, wire fraud, a few other counts. The ADA was happy. The perp was looking at three to five years. But there were some questions about the evidence that I didn't find the answers to, eating at me. I kept analyzing, getting more and more evidence. The prosecutor said, don't bother. She had all she needed for the conviction she was after. But I couldn't stop. I found a very small amount of oil in his personal effects. Oil that's used almost exclusively in firearms. And some gunshot residue and cocaine trace and several different kinds of trace that led to a particular location in Long Island City. There was a big self-storage facility in the neighborhood. The detective I was working with found that Baxter had a unit there. Baxter didn't tell us about it, because there was nothing there that had to do with the financial fraud, just personal things. But we got a warrant and found an unregistered handgun. That moved the charge up to a different class of felony, and even though the ADA didn't want to pursue it, Baxter had no history of violence. She didn't have any choice. Firearms possession carries a mandatory sentence in New York. DAs have to prosecute it. Archer said, He killed himself, facing that. No, he went to the violent felons wing on Rikers Island, got into a fight, and was killed by another prisoner. The facts sat between them in silence for a moment. You did everything right. Archer said, her voice analytical, not softened to convey reassurance. Too right, Rhyme said. But the gun? He shouldn't have had it. Well, yes and no. True, it was unregistered, so it technically fell within the law. But it was his father's from Vietnam. He'd never shot it, he claimed. Didn't even know he still had it. It was just stored away with a bunch of memorabilia from the 60s. The gun oil I'd found, he said he'd probably picked up at a sporting goods store buying a present for his son a week before. The gunshot residue could have been transferred from the cash. The same with the drugs. Half the twenties in the New York metro area have traces of cocaine, meth, and heroin on them. He never tested positive for any controlled substances, and he'd never been arrested on any drug charges. Never been arrested before at all. Rhyme offered what he knew was a rare smile. Gets worse. 
One of the reasons for the fraud, his daughter needed a bone marrow transplant. Ah, I'm sorry, but you were a cop. Isn't that the cost of doing business? Exactly Amelia Sachs's argument. She might have used those very words. Rhyme couldn't remember. It is. And am I traumatized and lying, well, sitting in a therapist's office? No. But there comes a time when you get off the carousel. Everything comes to an end. You needed to find the solution. Had to find it. I understand that, Lincoln. Epidemiology's the same. There's always a question. What's the virus? Where's it going to hit next? How do you inoculate? Who's susceptible? And I always had to find the answer. She loved the field of epidemiology. She'd told him when first asking about being his intern. But she could hardly continue to be a field agent. And the office work in that endeavor was far too uniform and boring to hold her attention. Crime scene, even in the lab, she reasoned, would keep her engaged. As with rhyme, boredom was a demon to Juliet Archer. She continued, I got dengue fever once, pretty serious. I had to find out how the mosquitoes were infecting people in Maine, of all places. You know dengue's a tropical disease. Don't know much about it. How on earth could people in New England get dengue? I searched for months. Finally found the answer. A rainforest exhibit in a zoo. I traced the victims back to visits to the place. And wouldn't you know, I got bit while I was there. Character is fate. Archer continued. It's a compulsion. You had to search the crime scene where you were injured and find out the answer to the gun oil and cocaine. I had to find those goddamn mosquitoes. An unanswered riddle is the worst thing in the world for me. Her striking blue eyes lit up again. I love riddles. You? Games or life? Games. No, I don't do that. I found they help you expand your thinking. I collect them. Want to try? That's all right. Meaning, absolutely not. His eyes were on the evidence boards whose backs were to them. Another sip of whiskey. Archer nonetheless said, Okay, two sons and two fathers go fishing. Each one catches a fish. They return from the trip with only three fish, though. How can that be? I don't know, really. I Come on, try. She repeated it. Rhyme grimaced, but he found himself thinking. One got away... They ate one for lunch, one fish ate another. Archer was smiling. The thing about riddles is that you never need more information than you're given. No fish sandwiches, no escapes. He shrugged. Give up. You're not trying very hard. All right, the answer? Sure. The fishing party included a grandfather, his son, and grandson. Two fathers, two sons, but only three people. Rhyme barked an involuntary laugh. Clever. He liked it. As soon as you got the idea of four people in your head, it's almost impossible to dislodge it, right? Remember, the answers to riddles are always simple, given the right mindset. The doorbell hummed. Rhyme looked at the video monitor. Archer's brother, Randy. Rhyme was mildly disappointed she'd be leaving. Tom went to answer the door. She said, one more. All right. What one thing do you find at the beginning of eternity and at the end of time and space? Matter? No. Black hole? No. Wormhole? You're guessing. Do you even know what a wormhole is? She asked. 
He did, but he hadn't really thought that was the answer. Simple. Give up? No, I'm going to keep working at it. Tom appeared a moment later with Archer's brother. They spoke for a few minutes, polite but pointless conversation. Then brief goodbyes and brother and sister headed out of the arched doorway of the parlor. Halfway through, Archer stopped. She wheeled around. Just curious about one thing, Lincoln. What's that? Baxter. Did he have a big house or apartment? What was this about? He thought back to the case. A house worth three million. Nowadays, how much big does that buy you? Why do you ask? Just wondering why he needed a storage unit in Long Island City where the gun was found. You'd think he could store things in his house, or at least in a storage place closer to home. Well, just a thought. Good night now. Night, he said. And don't forget our riddle. Eternity in time and space. She wheeled from sight. Computers saved my life. In several ways. In high school, I could excel at something, not sports. Tall is good for basketball, but skinny bean isn't. Computer club, math club, gaming, role-playing online. I could be whoever I wanted to. Appear whoever I wanted to appear. Thank you, avatars in Photoshop. And now, computers make my career possible. True, I don't really look a lot different from many people on the street. But just some different can be enough. People say they like different, but they don't really. Unless it's to look at and laugh at and boost themselves up. So running a business online in the safety of my Chelsea womb is perfect for me. I don't have to see people, talk to them in person, endure the gawking, even if it's with a smile on their faces. And I make a tidy living to boot. I'm now sitting at, yes, my computer, smarting from the loss of my white castle. At the kitchen table, I type some more. Read the results of my search. Type another request. Zip, zip, I get more answers. I like the sound the keys make. Satisfying. I've tried to describe it. Not a typewriter, not a light switch. Closest I can come is the sound of fat raindrops in a taut camping tent. Peter and I went camping a half dozen times when we were kids, twice with our parents. Not as much fun then. Father listened to a game. Mother smoked and turned magazine pages. Peter and I had fun, though, especially in the rain. I didn't have to be embarrassed going swimming. The girls, you know, and the boys in good shape. Tap, tap, tap. Funny how time seems to work to your advantage. I heard some people say, oh, wish I'd been born in this time or that time. Romans, Queen Victoria, the 30s, the 60s. But I'm lucky for the here and now. Microsoft, Apple, HTML, Wi-Fi, all the rest of it. I can sit in my room and put bread on my table and a woman in bed occasionally and a bone-cracking hammer in my hand. I can outfit the toy room with everything I need for my satisfaction. Thank you, computers. Love your raindrop keyboards. More typing. So, computers saved my life by giving me a business of my own, safe from the shoppers out there. And they'll save my life now because I'm learning all I can about Red. Amelia Sachs, detective third grade with the New York City Police Department. I almost solved the problem of her earlier, almost cracked her skull to splinters. I was following her near the White Castle, hand in my backpack on the lovely hammer handle, smooth as a girl's ankle, moving close, 
when some other man showed up who knew her. A cop, I had a feeling. One who worked for her, it seemed. Little white boy, skinny as me. Okay, not quite. And shorter. But he looked like trouble. He would have a gun and radio, of course. I settled for getting Red's license plate from that sexy car of hers. All the helpful information I'm learning about her is pretty neat. Daughter of a cop, partner of a cop. Well, former cop. Lincoln Rhyme, a famous guy. Disabled, which is what they call it, I've learned. In a wheelchair. So we have something in common. I'm not disabled, exactly. But people look at me the way they look at him, I imagine. Typing and typing hard. My fingers are long and big, my hands are strong. I break keyboards once every six months or more. And that's not even when I'm angry. Type, read, jot notes. More and more about red. Cases she's closed. Shooting competition she's won. I'm keeping that in mind, believe me. Now I am growing angry. Yes, you can buy White Castle burgers at grocery stores. I will do that. But it's not the same as going into the place. The tile, the smell of grease, and onions. I remember going to one near where we grew up. A cousin, Lindy, was visiting from Seattle. Middle schooler like me. I'd never been out with a girl before. And I pretended she wasn't a relative, and I imagined kissing her and her kissing me. Went to lunch at White Castle. Gave her a present for her shiny blonde hair to keep it dry. A clear plastic rain scarf, all folded up tight like a road map in a little pouch, deep blue and embroidered in a Chinese design. Lindy laughed. Kissed my cheek. A good day. That was White Castle to me. And Red has taken it away. Mad, mad. I come to a decision. But then, it's not a decision if you don't decide. I have no choice in the matter. As if on cue, the door buzzer blares. I jump at the sound, save the file on the computer, slip the hard copies away. I click the intercom. Vernon, it's me. Alicia says, asks. Come on up. You sure it's okay? My heart is slamming at the prospect of what's coming. For some reason, I glance back at the toy room door. I say into the intercom box, yes. Two minutes, here she is outside the door. I check the camera. She's alone, not brought here at gunpoint by Red, which I actually imagine happening. I let her in and close and lock the door. I think involuntarily of a stone closing onto a crypt. No turning back. Are you hungry? I ask. Not really. I was. Not any longer, considering what's about to happen. I start to reach for her jacket, then remember and let her hang it up. Tonight she's in her thick school teacher blouse, high neck. She looks at the darting fish, red and black and silver. The question is a knob throbbing prominently in my brain, right where I would crack the bone of someone I wanted to kill. Do I really want to do this? My anger at red oozes out to my skin and burns. Yes, I do. What? Alicia asks, looking at me with that wariness in her eyes. Must have said the word aloud. Come with me. Um, are you all right, Vernon? Fine, I whisper. This way. We walk to the door of the toy room. She looks at the complicated lock. I know she's seen it and is curious. Well, what do you want to hide? She'd be wondering. What's in the den, the lair, the crypt? Of course she doesn't say a word. Close your eyes. A hesitation now. I ask, 
Do you trust me? She doesn't. But what can she do? She closes her eyes. I grip her hand. Mine is trembling. She hesitates and then grips back. Sweat mixes. Then I'm guiding her through the door, the halogens shooting off the steel blades and blinding me. Not her. True to her word, Alicia keeps her eyes closed. Lincoln Rhyme lying in bed near midnight, hoping for sleep. He'd spent the last hour reflecting on Fromer v. Midwest Conveyance. Whitmore had called, and in his somber, well, dull voice reported that he'd discovered no other potential defendants. Attorney Holbrook was right. The cleaning crews could not possibly have done anything to cause the access panel to open, and the attorney's private eye had tracked down the crew that had dismantled the escalator for the Department of Investigations. The worker had confirmed that the door covering the access panel switch had indeed been closed and locked, confirming what Sachs had learned, that no one could, accidentally or on purpose, have opened the panel and caused the accident. So the case was officially dead. Now Rhyme's thoughts eased to Amelia Sachs. He was particularly aware of her absence tonight. He could not, of course, feel much of her body beside him when she was here. But he found comfort in her regular breathing, the layered smells of shampoo and soap. She was not a perfumista. Now he sensed an edge to the silence in the room, somehow accentuated by the aroma of inanimate cleansers and furniture polish and paper from the rows of books against the wall nearby. Thinking back to their harsh words earlier, his and Sax's. They'd always argued, but this had been different. He could tell from her tone. Yet he didn't understand why. Cooper was truly gifted, but the New York Police Department crime scene unit was filled with brilliant evidence collection technicians and analysts with expertise in hundreds of fields, from handwriting to ballistics to chemistry to remains reconstruction. She could have had any one of them. In hell, Sachs herself was an expert at forensic analysis. She might prefer somebody to man the gas chromatograph mass spectrometer or scanning electron microscope, but Rhyme himself didn't run those. He left that to the technical people. Maybe there was something else on her mind. Her mother, he supposed. Rose's operation would be weighing on her. A triple heart bypass in an elderly woman. The medical world was nothing short of miraculous, of course. But considering the massively complex and vulnerable machine within our skin, well, you couldn't help but think every one of our hours was borrowed. Since Fromer v. Midwest Conveyance no longer existed, tomorrow Mel Cooper would be back in the CSU fold, and she could use him to her heart's content. Sleep crowded in, and Rhyme now found himself thinking of Juliet Archer, wondering about her life in the future. She seemed to have what it took to be a solid forensic scientist, but at the moment his musings were about something else. Her coping with disability, she still had not fully accepted her condition. She would have a long and dark way to go before she did, if, in fact, she chose to do so. Brian recalled his own early battle, which culminated in a fierce debate about assisted suicide. He'd faced that choice and chosen to remain among the living. Archer was nowhere near that confrontation yet. How would she choose? And what, Rhyme wondered. What he'd think about her decision. 
Would he support it or argue against finality? But any debate within her was years off. Most likely he wouldn't even know her then. These ruminations, grim though they were, had the effect of lulling him to sleep. It was perhaps ten minutes later that he started awake, his head rising as he heard in his thoughts Archer's low alto voice. What one thing do we find at the beginning of eternity and the end of time and space? Rhyme laughed out loud. The letter E. Thursday. Three. Exploit. Chapter 16. Morning. A Chelsea morning. Chelsea light streams through the open shutters. I'm in the toy room, transcribing the diary once again. Sister Mary Frances's diligence is revealed in the perfectly scripted words I form on the thick paper. We played Alien Quest today. Long time, the three of us, Sam and Frank and me. The popular boys and me. Sam's dad has money. He sells things. Medical stuff, I don't know what it is, but the company pays well and even gives him a car. So Sam has all the games and all the platforms. Funny, even before I ran into them that day outside of Cindy's house, coming home a different route, the safe route, they never gave me any shit. But that didn't mean they'd be interested in hanging out. But they are. They're A-team. Ha <laughs> Don't mean on teams, even though they are. I mean, the top crowd, the click crowd, the A-team crowd. Handsome, cool, have any girl, any time. But they want to hang with me. It's Ty Butler, Dano, their friends, sort of goth, sort of redneck, yeah, even in Manhasset, Long Island. It's them who push and gawk and say, beanpole and dick freak, stuff like that. Sam heard about Butler saying something, and he went to find him and said, leave Griffith alone. And Butler did. Don't see them real often, Sam and Frank, the teams, the girls. But that's what makes it real. They're like, hey, Griffith, what's going on? And it's epic, because they use my last name, what the inn people do. Hey, Griffith, you want a Coke? Then we go separate ways for a few days or a week. Can't talk to them serious. Of course I'd like to. Talk about being, feeling different. Can't talk to anybody, really. Dad, yeah, right. In between games, which is never. Mom, sometimes. But she doesn't get it. She has baking, and her friends, and her crafts, and her food. And after 6.30, forget it. My brother's okay. But off doing other things. But talking to Sam and Frank? I decided no. Might break something is how I feel. I put the diary and the recorder away. I stretch and stand up and walk to the futon, look down, scanning Alicia's body. Pale, really pale, mouth kind of open, eyes kind of shut. Pretty, even in the messy clothes, the twisted sheets. Beside the bed is a band saw, which is really quite a wicked piece of machinery. If they had one during the Middle Ages, imagine how many people would have renounced the devil. Slice, slice, off with a finger, off with whatever. A voice makes me jump. Vernon, I turn. Alicia's stirring, blinking against the halogen lights. She sits up, blinking and stretching too. Morning, she says, shy and cautious. This is a word she's never said to me before, at first staying over. At first, 
her seeing the toy room, which no one else has ever done, and which I thought would never ever happen. Letting someone into my sanctuary, letting someone see the real me was hard to do, so very hard. I could never explain it right, but it was like risking everything to let her in. One night stands, screwing to exhaustion, that's easy. But taking a woman to a gallery exhibition showing paintings you're hopelessly passionate about, that's a chance that's so risky. What if she laughs? What if she looks bored? What if she decides you miss her mark completely and wants to go away? But last night, walking into the toy room, and on my command, opening her eyes, Alicia was as delighted as I've ever seen her. She gazed over the workbench, the saws, the tools, the hammers, the chisels. My new implement, the razor with the tiny teeth, my favorite, my child. I loved seeing her pale brow and cheeks lit by the blue-white reflections shooting from all the steel surfaces. But what really entranced her was what I constructed with those tools. You made these? She asked last night. Did, I told her uncertainly. Oh, Vernon, they're works of art. And hearing that, my life was about as perfect as it could be. A good day. But just after that last night, we grew very, very busy and after fell fast asleep. Now this morning, she wants to see more of my handiwork. Before I can turn away or hand her a robe, she's out of bed, and Alicia does in her way what I have done by sharing the room with her. Because now in the light, she remains naked. And I can see her scars clearly. This is the first time she's allowed me to view them full. The high neck dress or blouse covers them when she's clothed. The thick sheltering bra and high panties when she's half naked. And when we're in bed, the lights are always low to non-existent. Now though, here's every inch of her body to see in sunsplayed clarity. The slashed breast and thigh. The burned groin, the patch where her arm bone poked through her pale skin after being so fiercely bent. I hurt for this woman because of these scars and the scars within, all going back to her husband years ago, a terrible time. I want to make her whole, make her perfect again, untwist the arm that her husband twisted, unburn her low belly, mend her breast. But all I have are my steel tools. And all they could do is the opposite of my good intent, cutting and crushing and snapping flesh. What I can do, though, is to ignore the troubled skin, which is not at all difficult, and show her, it's quite obvious now, how much I desire her. And I think here is yet another way I can help heal the other scars, the ones inside. Alicia looks up at my eyes and comes close to smiling. Then she enwraps her bothered flesh with a sheet stained from us both, because it's what any normal couple would do upon waking. She walks to the shelves, and once more looks over the miniatures I've built with my panoply of tools. I construct almost exclusively furniture. Not toys, not kids or us plastic or mismatched wood glued together by children in China, but fine-worked, quality pieces, only tiny, tiny, tiny. I spend days on each piece, sometimes weeks, turning legs on a model maker's lathe, using the precious razor saw to make even seams, lacquering chests of drawers and desks and headboards with ten coats of varnish so they're smooth and shiny and dark as a still autumn pond. Alicia says, 
This is as good as anything you'll find in an artisan's workshop in High Point. North Carolina, you know, where they make real furniture. Really, Vernon, amazing. And I can tell from her face, she means it. You told me you sold things for a living, eBay and online. I just assume you bought things and marked them up and sold them. No, I wouldn't like that. I like making things. You shouldn't call them things. They're more than things. They're works of art. I might be blushing, I don't know. And for a moment, I want to hug her, kiss her. But not in the way I usually grip her and taste her finger or mouth or nipple or groin. Just hold my lips against her temple. This might be what love is, but I don't know about that. And I don't want to think beyond this now. It's quite a workshop. She's looking around. My toy room, that's what I call it. Why didn't you tell me this is what you do? You were all mysterious. Just a shrug. The answer, of course, is shoppers. The bullies. The rude. The people who humiliate for sport. Vernon Griffith sits in his dark room and makes toys. Why bother to get to know a freak like him? I need somebody chic or cool or handsome. I don't answer. Who buys them? I can't help but laugh. The people who pay the most are the American girl folks. Mostly they're lawyers and doctors and CEOs who do anything, spend any amount for their little girls. I know they don't appreciate the pieces, even the ones I charge a thousand for, any more than they would a hunk of molded polyurethane. And I doubt they enjoy their children's faces when they open the package, though I suspect the kid's reaction is a millimeter above indifference. No, what the businessmen enjoy is showing off to neighbors. Oh, look what I had commissioned for Ashley. It's teak, you know. And I always reflect on the irony of parents buying for their adorable little ones a chest of drawers made by the same hands that have cracked skulls or sliced tender throats with a lovely implement. Most buyers, however, love what I sell. The reviews are always stellar. Oh, and look, you do historical things, too. She's looking at a catapult a siege tower, a medieval banquet table, a torture rack, one of my more popular items, which I find amusing. We can thank Game of Thrones for that. I made a lot of elvish and orc things when the Hobbit movies came out. Anything medieval is okay as long as it's generic. I was going to do Hunger Games, but I was worried about trademark and copyright stuff. You have to be careful with Disney, too, and Pixar. Oh, you have to see this. I find a book on my shelf, hold it up. The Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death. What is this, Vernon? She sidles close, and I feel her body against mine as I flip the pages. A woman in Chicago, a millionaire heiress, long time ago. She died in 62. Frances Glessner Lee. Ever heard of her? No. Quite a person. She didn't do heiress society stuff. She was fascinated with crime, murder mostly and had dinner parties, fancy ones, for police investigators. She learned all about solving murders. But she wanted to do more, so she got details on famous murders and made dioramas, you know, like dollhouse rooms, of crime scenes. Every detail was perfect. The book has photographs of her miniature scenes, names like Three Room Dwelling and The Pink Bathroom. Everyone features a doll of a corpse where a corpse actually lay, Bloodstains where the bloodstains really were. I think suddenly of red, 
What I found out about her, Ms. Shopper Amelia Sachs, is that she specializes in crime scene work. Two thoughts. She would probably appreciate the book. The other. A miniature diorama in which a doll representing her shapely body lies on the floor of her bedroom. Skull, cracked, red hair, redder from the blood. We laugh at some of the perfect detail Lee included in her work. I put the book away. Would you like one? I ask. She turns. One what? I nod toward the shelves. A miniature. I, I don't know. Aren't those part of your inventory? Yes. But the buyers will wait. What do you want? Anyone in particular? She leans forward and her eyes settle on a baby carriage. It's so perfect. She offers her second smile. There are two perambulators, one made on commission and one I've done just because I enjoy making baby carriages. Couldn't say why. Babies and children do not, never have, never will figure in my life. She points to the one that's under commission, the better one. I pick it up and hand it to her. She touches it carefully and repeats, it's perfect, every part. Look at how the wheels turn. It even has springs. I have to keep the baby comfy. I say, thank you, Vernon. She kisses my cheek and turns away, letting the sheet slither to the floor while she lies on the bed gazing up at me. I debate. An hour won't delay me significantly. Besides, it seems humane to give the person I'm going to kill today a little more time on God's earth. I want that damn thing out of here, Rhyme was grumbling to Tom, nodding toward the escalator. Your exhibit A? What am I supposed to do? It's five tons of industrial machinery. Rhyme was truly irritated by the device's presence. A reminder that what, yes, might well have been exhibit A was going to be no such thing. Tom was looking for the paperwork that came with the unit. Call Whitmore, Mr. Whitmore, he arranged it. I did call, he didn't get back to me. Well, Lincoln, don't you think it might be best to let him handle it? Or do you really want me to look up partial escalator removal services on Craigslist? What's Craigslist? We'll wait for the lawyer to contact the company. At least his people knew what they were doing. The floors aren't actually scratched at all. Surprise to me. The doorbell rang and Rhyme was pleased to see that Juliet Archer had arrived. He noted that she was alone, no brother in tow. He suspected she'd insisted he drop her off on the sidewalk to negotiate the intimidating ramp on her own, no babying allowed. He wondered what assignment to give her. There wasn't anything that got his heart racing. Academic research for a school of criminalistics in Munich, a position paper on mass spectrometry for publication here in a scientific journal he contributed to, a proposal about extracting trace evidence from smoke. Morning, she said, wheeling into the parlor, smiling to Tom. Welcome back, the aide said. Rhyme offered, do you speak German by any chance? No, afraid not. Oh, well, I'll find something else to occupy your time. I think there are a few projects that aren't too boring. Well, boring or not, I'm happy to work on anything you have. And forgive the dangling modifier there. He gave a chuckle. 
True, she'd just said that whether or not she was boring, she'd be happy to work on any project. Grammar, punctuation, and syntax could be formidable opponents. Breakfast, Juliet? Tom asked. I've eaten already, thanks. Lincoln, what's it going to be? Rhyme was wheeling closer to the escalator unit. I don't think any one piece would weigh more than a hundred pounds. Anybody could take it apart. But I suppose we should wait for... His voice braked to a stop. Tom was asking something once again. Rhyme didn't hear a word. Lincoln? What? Well, that's a fierce gaze. I was only asking what you wanted for breakfast. He ignored the aide and wheeled closer yet to the scaffolding and examined the deadly access panel, and below it, the switch and servo motor operating the latch. What is the number one rule in engineering? He whispered. I have no idea. What do you want for breakfast? He continued rhetorically. The answer is efficiency. Design should have no more components, Archer finished his sentence, more or less, than are necessary to perform the intended function. Exactly, Tom said. Fine, fine. Now, pancakes, bagel, yogurt, all of the above? God damn it. Though directed at himself, not his aide. What is it, Lincoln? Archer asked. He'd made a mistake. And nothing infuriated Lincoln Rhyme more than that. He pivoted and sped his chair forward to the nearest computer, on which he summoned the close-up pictures that Mel Cooper had taken of the interior of the escalator. Yes, he was right. How the hell had he missed it? In fact, he hadn't missed the critical fact at all. He'd noted, but unforgivably had not focused on, the very words he'd thought to himself. The switch wire ended in a plug inserted into one of the outlets on the side of the servo unit inside. One of the outlets. He explained now to Archer. Look at the servo motor operating the latch right side. Ah, she said, a hint of disgust in her voice as well. It has two outlets. Right. We saw that. We looked right at it. Archer was shaking her head. Rhyme scowled. We sure did. There was no reason to have a second outlet in the motor unless something, another switch presumably, was plugged into it. Of course, this was true of the mock-up in front of them. What of the escalator actually involved in the accident? He posed this question to Archer. She pointed out that Amelia Sachs had taken some pictures of that one, unofficially. Good, he called them up. Tom tried again. Lincoln... Breakfast? Later. Now. Anything. I don't care. He and Archer stared at the pictures. But they didn't answer the question. The angles were wrong, and there was too much blood inside the pit where the tragedy had occurred to see clearly. I wonder. A second switch, Rhyme said in a soft voice. Archer said, which malfunctioned, and if we're lucky, it's made by a company other than Midwest Conveyance a company with a lot of assets. He continued. Where would it be, the other switch? Anything in the documentation? Nothing, she reported, after scrolling through what she'd downloaded. How can we find out? Here's a thought. The mall in Brooklyn where the accident happened. All the escalators would be the same, right? I'd assume so. 
How's this? Whitmore hires a private eye. He must have a dozen he uses. The P.I. jams something into one of the escalator steps. Shuts it down. Rhyme nodded. He liked this idea. They'll get a repair crew in right away. Whitmore's man could stay close and take pictures inside when they get it open. Tom, who'd overheard, was frowning. Seriously, Lincoln? You don't think that crosses some line? Rhyme scowled. What I'm thinking about is Sandy Fromer and her son. Juliet Archer said, Before you do that, can I try something? He quite liked the idea of sabotage. But he said, What do you suggest? Hello? Is this Attorney Holbrook? Yes, who's this? The voice resonated from the speaker of Rhyme's landline. My name is Juliet Archer. I work with the men you were Skyping with yesterday. Evers Whitmore and Lincoln Rhyme. A moment of silence as the man recalled. Oh, the case. The lawyer and the consultant. About the personal injury suit, Greg Fromer. That's right. Yes, I think somebody mentioned your name. You're a consultant, too? Rhyme watched her face, narrow, her blue eyes focused on the floor. She was concentrating and hard. I am. The man muttered. Well, we're still bankrupt. Nothing's changed. Like I said, you want to file a motion to lift the stay? Go ahead. The trustee will fight it. I doubt you'll win, but feel free. No, I'm calling about something else. Archer had the same edgy tone in her voice that Rhyme recalled from when he'd sent her away from his townhouse after arriving for the first day of internship. He wondered where she was going. And what's that? Holbrook asked. You were courteous enough to suggest we might pursue other defendants, though none of those worked out. The in-house counsel sounded wary as he said, No, I didn't think that seemed likely. After all, Midwest Conveyance was the company that was responsible. I admitted that, and I'm sorry we aren't able to help your client, the widow. Didn't seem likely, she echoed. Still, you never suggested the one company that might be a viable defendant. Silence. You know whom I'm talking about, don't you? What's your point, Miss Archer? that you didn't tell us about the second switch that opens the access panel. Second switch? His tone suggested he was stalling. That's my question, Mr. Holbrook. Who makes it? How does it work? We need to know. Uh, I really can't help you, Miss Archer. I should go. Did you know that Lincoln Rhyme, the other consultant on this case, has worked most frequently with the NYPD and- We're not in that jurisdiction. And I was going to say, with the FBI, too- there are no state or federal crimes involved here. There are confidentiality agreements that preclude me from talking about companies we're in a contractual relationship with. You've just confirmed that there is a second switch that could open the access panel. I, well, I'm terminating this conversation. I'm going to hang up now, and, and after you do, I'm calling Sandy Fromer and suggesting she and her lawyer hold a press conference about Midwest's lack of cooperation in finding who really was responsible for her husband's death. I'll suggest they use the phrase cover-up. I'm guessing that wouldn't play well in bankruptcy court, especially among creditors who'd love to get their hands on the personal assets of the executives of the company. A sigh. Help us out here. She's a widow with a son. I believed you when you said you were sorry. Go the next step and tell us, please. Who makes the second switch? Do you have time for leisure reading, Miss Archer? She was frowning. A glance at Rhyme. She said, Occasionally. Pages rustled, Rhyme could hear. The lawyer said, 
I myself am a big fan of Entertainment Weekly and Fly Fishing Today, but I still find time for Industrial Systems Monthly. I enjoyed the March issue particularly, pages 40 and 41. What? Goodbye, Miss Archer. I will not pick up if you call back. She disconnected. Good, Rhyme said. From Boston Law? Legal, she corrected. But no, I was vamping. Rhyme was already online. He found a digital version of the magazine Holbrook had mentioned and scrolled to the pages cited. It was an advertisement for a product made by a company called CIR Microsystems. Much of the copy was technical, none of which he understood at first glance. Featured was a gray box with wires protruding. According to a caption, it was a data-wise 5,000. The hell is it? Rhyme asked. Archer shook her head and went online. A few seconds of Google and she had an answer. Well, listen to this. It's a smart controller. I believe I've heard the term. Tell me more. She read for a few minutes, then explained. A lot of products have them built in. Conveyance systems, escalators, elevators, and cars, trains, industrial machinery, medical equipment, construction equipment, hundreds of consumer appliances, stoves, heating systems, lighting in your house, security, door locks. You can send and receive data to and from machinery with your phone or tablet or computer, wherever you are, and control the products remotely. So maybe a maintenance worker sent a signal by mistake and the access panel opened? Or stray radio waves triggered it? It's possible. I'm on Wikipedia and... Oh, my. What? I'm just reading about CIR Micro, the maker of the controller. And? The head of the place, Vinay Parth Chowdhury, is being called the new Bill Gates. She looked over at Rhyme. And the company's worth 800 billion. Let's call Evers Whitmore. I think we're back in the game. Chapter 17 No help from CSU headquarters on the brand of varnish or cosmetics found at the earlier Unsub-40 scenes, or the type of sawdust. Nor had there been any more insights into trace or DNA on the White Castle napkins. But at least the car service lead blossomed. Got it. Ron Pulaski held up a pad to Sachs, sitting across from him in their war room at 1PP. The young officer read from his notes. Driver Eduardo. He remembers the unsub. Picked him up across the street from the White Castle. Had a bag full of burgers. Ate them while he drove. A dozen, maybe more. He talked to himself some, and spoke in a weird monotone. Skinny, looked down all the time. Scary, and it was the day of the murder. The driver got a good look at him? Not really, just lanky, skinny, tall, the green jacket and Atlanta baseball cap. Sachs asked, how could he not get a good look at him? Dirty glass, the partition, you know, plexiglass. He added that the driver had dropped their unsub in downtown Manhattan, about four blocks from the murder site. What time? About 6 p.m., hours before the murder. What had he done during the intervening time, she wondered. Pulaski added, the driver stayed at the corner where he dropped him off, had some calls to make, and watched him for a minute. The unsub didn't go to any of the buildings at the intersection near where they stopped. He walked a block away to another one. The driver could have dropped him there, but maybe our boy didn't want to be seen going into a particular place. The young officer went online, 
she could see, and called up a map of the city. He tapped a satellite image overhead of a building. Here it is. This has to be it, from what he described. The picture view revealed a small building, terracotta in color. Small factory, offices, warehouse? Doesn't seem residential, Sack said. Let's go take a look. They left 1PP and headed downstairs to her car. In ten minutes, they were cruising through congested downtown traffic, Sachs pumping the accelerator in low gears when she could, cutting in and out of the lanes as aggressively as ever. Wondering, as she often did, what would they learn? Sometimes leads provided a minor fact to help in the investigation. Sometimes they were a waste of time. And sometimes they took you straight to the perp's front door. Mel Cooper was back in Rhyme's Central Park West parlor. Sorry, Amelia, Rhyme thought. After the discovery of the potential new defendant, I need him more than you do. We'll argue later. Evers Whitmore was present, too. The three men were staring into a dark portion of the room, where Juliet Archer sat in front of a computer, verbally commanding her computer to do her bidding. Up three lines, write two words, select, cut, so very difficult to live life without shortcuts, Rhyme thought. Being disabled put you in a very 19th century world. Everything took longer. He himself had tried eye recognition, voice recognition, a laser-emitting device attached to his ear that activated portions of the screen. He had returned to the old-fashioned way, using his hand on a joystick or touchpad. This was clumsy and slow, but the technique approached normal, and Rhyme had nearly mastered it. He saw that Archer needed to settle into an artificiality that was right for her. In a few minutes, she wheeled about and joined them. On the screen nearby were the fruits of her work, but she began to report verbally on what she'd found, without glancing toward the notes glowing on the monitors. Okay, CIR Microsystems, Vinay Chaudhry's company. It's the number one manufacturer of smart controllers in the country. Revenues of two billion annually. My... That's helpful, the understated Whitmore said. The controller's basically a small computer with a Wi-Fi or Bluetooth connection, or cellular one mounted in the machine or appliance it controls. It's really pretty simple. Say it's mounted in a stove. The controller is online with the stove manufacturer's cloud server. The homeowner has an app on his smartphone to communicate with the stove from anywhere in the world. He logs into the server and can send or receive signals to and from the controller to shut the stove off or on. The manufacturer also is online with the stove to collect data from the controller. Usage information, diagnostics, maintenance scheduling, breakdowns. It can even be alerted to burned-out lights in the oven. Cooper asked, Any problem with the DataWise 5000 controller in the past? Activating when it shouldn't? None that I could find, but I was playing Google Roulette. Give me some time and I might find something more. So how did it open the panel? Rhyme mused. A stray signal ordered the controller to open the door? Something in the mall itself? Or from the cloud? Or did the data-wise just short out and send the open command itself? Archer looked up from the computer and said, Have something here. Take a look at this. It's from a blog about two months ago. Social engineering secondly. That's second as in the unit of time, I think. Updated every second as opposed to monthly or weekly, doesn't quite work. Rhyme said, 
Sometimes you can be too clever for your own good. He and the others read, Indulgence equals death. The dangers of the Internet of Things, IOT. Will consumer indulgence be the death of us? From self-foaming soap to portion-controlled, calorie-specific meals delivered to consumers' homes in time for dinner, manufacturers are increasingly marketing products geared to take over people's lives. The justification is that they are helping busy professionals and families save time, and in some instances money, and make their lives easier. In reality, many of these items are simply desperate attempts to fill the pockets of companies facing markets saturated with competing products, or in which brand differentiation has all but vanished. But there's a dark side to the convenience factor. I'm speaking of what is called the Internet of Things, or IoT. Thousands of appliances, tools, heating and air conditioning systems, vehicles and industrial products, sport internal computer controls that allow consumers to access them remotely. These have been around for some years in the form of home security systems, in which video cameras are, in effect, many computers connected to your Wi-Fi or cellular service. When you're away, you log on to an Internet site, supposedly secure, and make sure no burglars are prowling through your living room or to keep an eye on the babysitter. Now the proliferation of these embedded devices, that is, containing computer circuitry, is increasing exponentially. They help us save money and make our lives so much more convenient. Now you can turn your oven on from a remote location, turn your furnace up when you're on your way home, tell your door to unlock for an hour when the plumber's expected, and watch him at work on your security camera. Start your car remotely on below zero days. How convenient. What could be wrong with that? Who can argue with this? Well, I can. Let me tell you two dangers. One, is your data safe? The way most smart controller systems work is that the appliances in your home are online with cloud servers run by the manufacturers of those appliances. While they assure you your privacy is important, all of them collect data about their product's performance and your usage history, often without your knowledge. That information is routinely sold to data miners. Some effort is made to keep your identity anonymous, but just consider. Last week, a 13-year-old in Fresno got the names, addresses, and credit card numbers of everyone who owned a general heating furnace equipped with a smart controller. It took him six minutes to download that data. 2. Is your life safe? More troubling is the potential for injury and death when a smart system malfunctions. Because all functions of smart appliances are managed by the controller, not just data collection, it's possible in theory for a water heater, for instance, to receive a signal to turn the heat up to 200 degrees while you're in the shower. Or in the event of fire in your house, the controller could lock your doors and trap you inside your dwelling and refuse to send a signal to the fire department reporting the blaze. Or it might even contact the authorities and report a false alarm, leaving you and your family to die a hideous death. Representatives for the manufacturers say no. There are safeguards built in. Network keys, encryption, passcodes. But your blogger recently purchased one of these controllers, the DataWise 5000 by CIR Microsystems, one of the most common, found in everything from water heaters to elevators to microwaves. 
It was possible, by bombarding the device with ambient radio waves, to cause it to malfunction. Had the unit been installed in a car, a medical instrument, a piece of dangerous industrial machinery, a stove, the results of that malfunction could have been disastrous. Ask yourself, is convenience worth the price of your and your children's lives? Bingo, Archer said, smiling. More sedately, Whitmore mused, we could argue that the controller's defective because it wasn't shielded from ambient signals. Rhyme said, who posted that? We should talk to him. The blog gave little personal information and no address. Rhyme said, Rodney. Who? Archer asked. You'll see, Rhyme said. A glance at Cooper, who smiled knowingly and said, I'll get the volume, and turned down the control on the speakerphone. And despite the reduced decibels, when the phone was answered a moment later, relentless rock music pounded into the parlor. A bit more, Rhyme called to Cooper, who complied. A voice from the other end of the line. Hello? Archer frowned in curiosity. Rodney, can we lose the music? Sure. Hi, Lincoln. The chugga-chugga bass diminished to whisper. It was not, however, lost. Rodney Sarnik was a senior detective with the NYPD's elite computer crimes unit. He was impressively brilliant at collaring perps and helping other investigators with the computer side of a case, though irritatingly in love with the worst music on earth. Rhyme explained that the detective was on speaker, then told him about the case. The smart controller in an escalator might have malfunctioned, resulting in a gruesome death. But it's not a case, Rodney. How's that? It's civil. Mel Cooper's here, but only on vacation. And I'm confused. I'm not working with the department, Rodney, Rhyme said patiently. No. Yes. If you quit, why have you not quit? I only ask because we're having this conversation. I resigned from criminal practice. I'm consulting on a civil case. A pause. Ah, oh, well, in that case, I can't really help you. You understand. Wish I could. No, I know that. All I need is for you to tell us how to find the physical address of somebody who's written a blog about these controllers. We want to talk to him. Maybe hire him as an expert witness. Pretend we're at a cocktail party, you and me. Well, finding somebody online? That's easy enough. A who is search? W-H-O-I-S. Run the .com or .net name through that. Of course, he might be using a privacy service as the domain registrant. That's so pissed-off ex-wives or pissed-off ex-husbands can't find out where the registrant lives. Rhyme looked to Cooper, who typed at the keyboard in front of his monitor. He nodded at the results. Rhyme read them. It says Privacy Plus New Zealand. Yep, that's a service to mask the physical address. And New Zealand? No court order. You're screwed. Rhyme said calmly. But we can't afford to be screwed, Rodney. Let's think harder. Sarnik cleared his throat. Well, speaking theoretically, you catch that word? Theoretically? To get past a privacy service, one might go online and download and install on a flash drive, of course, to be burned later, a program like, let's just say, Hidden Surf. Then one would run that and then do a search of Russian websites for a program called, let's just say, 
Ograblenye means robbery in Russian. Don't we love our Slavic friends' subtlety? Ograblenye is a hacker code, completely illegal, terrible, I don't approve one bit, because it allows people to hack into a, say, a privacy service, even in, oh, say, New Zealand, and look up the physical address of someone whose IP, internet address, you know. We'd better hang up now, Rodney. I'm in favor of that. Although, how can we hang up if you and I haven't even been talking? Music rose to lofty decibels, and they disconnected. Rhyme said, Did somebody write all that down? Know what to do? We've got to... Archer looked up from her computer screen and said, Bad news, good news. What? I followed his instructions. The bad news is you've already started to get Russian porn spam. But the good news? I've got the blogger's address. Chapter 18 Too many people in this city, Ron Pulaski said then seemed to regret the comment, since the perp they were now seeking was in his own demented way addressing the population situation. The young officer's complaint really was that there were too many people crossing streets against lights, and that those lights were not in his and Amelia Sachs's favor. She, however, wasn't that concerned about either limitation. True, transit was slow, but they were making steady progress from 1PP to the intersection where the gypsy cab had dropped unsub-40 the night he'd murdered Todd Williams with his inelegant but effective tool. Sachs was engaging in what she called the touchless nudge, easing the car close to those blocking the way with an air of sufficient distraction to make the pedestrian feel deliciously imperiled and accordingly scoot out of the way. Finally, they escaped from the downtown area known in the 1800s as Five Points, the most dangerous few square miles in the United States, now far more pristine, though, some said cynically, populated by as many criminals as back in the day the neighborhood embraced City Hall. In ten minutes, they spotted the gypsy cab on the Lower East Side, parts of which were growing into hipster and artist enclaves. Not here. Dilapidated commercial buildings ruled, and a number of vacant lots. In the phone conversation, arranging this meeting, the driver had said, You'll see me, white Ford, dripping wet, just cleaner. The accent had been a mystery. Sachs nosed the Torino into a space, avoiding mounds of trash banked at the curb, and they climbed out. The short, swarthy driver, in jeans and a blue Real Madrid soccer shirt, exited his cab and joined them. I'm Detective Sachs. This is Officer Pulaski. Hi, hi. He shook their hands enthusiastically. Some people are nervous meeting the police. Some are critical of authority. And some, a few, act like they're in the presence of rock stars. Eduardo was going to give White Castle's Charlotte a run for the money. So, i happy to help. Happy. Good. Appreciate it. Tell me about this man. You're very tall and very skinny. Weird, don't you know? Any distinguishing characteristics? He blurted. Yes. No, no, couldn't see much. Hat on, Braves, the team, don't you know? Yes, we know. Pulaski was looking around, taking in the empty street. Warehouses, small offices, nothing residential or retail. He turned back to his notebook, in which he was transcribing whatever the man had to say. Sunglasses he wore, too. Hair color? Lighter, I think, but the hat, you know.
And his clothes? Green jacket, yellow green, dark pants, and a backpack. Oh, and a bag. Bag? Plastic, like he bought something and they put it in bag. He look in bag a couple times, I driving him. Charlotte had said the same. Any logo on the bag? Logo? Store name, picture, smiley face? Emoji, no. How big was the bag? Sax asked. Not big. Strawberries. You had strawberries? Pulaski wondered. No, no, I mean, about size of package of strawberries. Just thinking that, or blueberries, or salad dressing, or a large can of tomatoes. That big, Eduardo said, beaming. Exactly. Any idea what was in it? No, here's something metal. Click, a click. Oh, and those burgers. A dozen white castles. A dozen. Did he make any phone calls? No, but he kind of talked to himself. I told you that on phone. I could not hear good. First I said, what that, sir? Thinking he talking to me. But he said, nothing. I mean, he said something. Nothing was what he said. Don't you know? And then he quiet after that. Just look out window. Wouldn't look at me. So couldn't really see scars. You always like scars. Police, distinguishing things. But didn't see any. Pulaski asked. Did he have an accent? Yes. What was it? American, Eduardo responded. He wasn't being ironic. So you stopped here, this intersection? Yes, yes. I thought you want to see where exactly. We do. He paid with cash? Yes, yes, that's all we take, don't you know? I don't suppose there's any chance you still have the money he paid you with. For fingerprints! That's right. No. The driver shook his head broadly. You waited here and saw him go into one of those buildings. Pulaski was looking up from the notebook. I did, yes, I will tell you. He pointed up the street. You can just see it, that one, beige. He rung two syllables out of the color. It was the one they'd found on the satellite map. From here, they could make out only a sliver of the five-story building. The front was on an adjoining street. It was surrounded by a vacant lot on one side and a half-demolished building on the other. Eduardo continued. I remember because I'm thinking maybe whoever he was going to see was not home or not there. And this neighborhood? No cruising medallions. So he want to go back to Queens and I go make a second fare. But I saw him go through back door. That's when I left, don't you know? We appreciate your help. He a killer? Eduardo grinned happily. He's wanted in connection with a homicide, yes. If you see him again, if he comes by your office in Queens, call 911 and give them my name. She dealt out another of her cards. Don't do anything yourself. Try to stop him. No, I call you, officer detective. After he'd left, she and Pulaski started toward the building he'd pointed out. They got no more than a half block when she stopped fast. What is it, Amelia? Pulaski whispered. She was squinting. What street is that? That the building faces? I don't know. He pulled out his Samsung and loaded a map. Ridge, the young officer frowned. Why is that familiar? Hell, Sachs nodded. Yep, it's where Todd Williams worked. She'd learned where the victim's office was and retraced his steps from the murder site back to here, canvassing for clues. She'd also tried to interview others in the ramshackle building. But of the few people who had offices in the structure, only three or four, the rest of the space being empty, no one had seen anything helpful to the investigation. They knew each other. The unsub and Williams, 
Well, this changes everything. It wasn't a robbery or random killing at all, Sachs mused. The unsub got here four hours before the murder. Did they stay in the building? If so, doing what? Or did they go somewhere else? And other questions. Did unsub 40 come to this area often? Did he live near here? She looked around the street. The occupied buildings included a few tenements and what seemed to be warehouses and wholesalers. The canvas probably wouldn't take too long. She'd assemble a team from the local precinct. Sachs spotted a homeless man, lean and pale, foraging through a trash bin. Approaching, Sachs said, Hi, can I ask you a question? Just did. His dark face wrinkled. I'm sorry? He returned to digging through the bin. Just did ask me a question. She laughed. You live near here? Simon says. He found a half sandwich and put it into his shopping bag. Okay, I'm being fun. Shelter up the street, or under the bridge, depending. The hands and neck and calves, which were uncovered by the greasy clothing, were quite muscular. Did you see anybody tall and real thin go into that building a few weeks ago? Or any other time? No. He moved on to another bin. Sachs and Pulaski trailed. You sure? Pulaski asked. Want another look? No. Simon says. Sachs waited. The man said, You asked if I saw him going into the building. Nope, didn't. You didn't ask if I'd seen him, period, which I have. Simon says. Okay, where have you seen him? Now you're cooking with gas. Standing right Jiminy there. He pointed. The far intersection, the direction they were going. Skinny guy, but eating like a... Do sailors eat? No, they swear. Chimney smoke. He was eating something, munching it down. Was gonna hit him up for something, but felt off, kind of talking to himself. Not that I don't. <laughs> also eating that way, thought he seemed greedy. Chomp, chomp, chomp. I wouldn't get anything. When was this? A while ago. How long? A week? A few days? Simon says. Sachs tried. What do you mean by a while ago? Ten, fifteen? Days? Minutes. He was just there. Jesus. Sachs unbuttoned her jacket and glanced up the street. Pulaski, too, grew vigilant, looking in the directions she was not. He going any particular way? She asked. And don't Simon says me. No, just standing there. I went on looking for stuff, and that was it. Didn't see him again. Could be here, could be there, could be anywhere. Pulaski was pressing the transmit button on the Motorola mic pinned to his shoulder. He called in a request for backup, and before she could remind him to do so, he said, Silent roll-up. Suspect may be unaware of our presence, okay? Okay, came the staticky response. Sachs got the homeless man's name, which wasn't Simon, and the shelter he sometimes stayed in. She thanked him and told him it was best to leave. She was tempted to hand him a twenty, but if it came down to testifying in court about the presence of the unsub, a defense lawyer would ask if he'd been paid anything by the police. You better get back to the shelter. Safer. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Officer, sir. He started away. Ron Pulaski said, 
Oh, hey, look. The man slowly pivoted. Pulaski was pointing at something in the street a few feet away from them. It was a $20 bill. You dropped that? Pulaski asked. Me? Ha. If we take it, we have to report it. Pain in the ass. Bullshit. Sacks playing along. True. Rules, Pulaski said. You go ahead and take it. Find his keepers. Simon says. Think I will. There's a reason you get half sandwiches in the trash. Nobody throws out a good sandwich. He scooped up the money with his long, sinewy fingers and pocketed it. Sachs nodded to Pulaski, acknowledging the good deed. It had never occurred to her to handle it that way. The man wandered off, muttering to himself. How long, you think? She asked. Before backup? Eight, nine minutes? He can't have gotten very far. Let's check the ground for footprints. See if we can find which way he went. Size 13s. They began to walk a lazy grid in search of tread marks. The search was, of course, slowed by the fact that each officer looked up from time to time, searching for a threat. Just because Unsub-40 had not shot anyone yet didn't mean he wasn't willing and able to try. Chapter 19 Tom had dropped Evers Whitmore and Lincoln Rhyme off in front of the building that housed the blogger's office, whose address Juliet Archer had tracked down and drove off to park the accessible van in a lot a few blocks away. The lawyer once again pressed the button on the intercom. Social engineering secondly. It was on the top floor. Still no answer. We can keep looking, Whitmore said. There have to be other people who've researched the data-wise. But Rhyme wanted the man who'd written the piece that Archer had found. He wanted to know exactly what kind of ambient radio waves had caused it to activate. Expert witness. A perfect one. Whitmore gazed around the deserted streets. We can leave a note, I suppose. No, Rhyme said. He'll never contact us. We know where he works now. Let's come back later. We can... What was that? Whitmore said quickly. Rhyme, too, had heard the scrape of soul on the cobblestones. Around the corner, it seemed. Whitmore, of course, was not given to displays of emotion, but Rhyme could tell from the lawyer's uncharacteristically darting eyes that he was concerned. Rhyme was, too. The footsteps seemed furtive. The lawyer said, I've never done criminal work, but I've been shot at twice pursuant to civil suits. The perpetrators missed both times and might have been trying only to scare me, but it was still an unpleasant experience. Rhyme had been shot at as well and could concur. Another scrape. From where? Rhyme had no idea. Whitmore added, I also received in the mail a rat without its head. The head arrived a week later with a note suggesting I withdraw a lawsuit. It was nerves talking at this point. But you didn't. Rhyme was scanning the street and the buildings. This was not a particularly dangerous neighborhood statistically, but if a mugger wanted to nail someone easy, this pair would be a good choice. A slim, nerdy lawyer and a gimp. Whitmore said, No, the case stood. In fact, I ran some forensics on the rat, found human DNA, and my private eye got samples of personal effects of everyone connected to the case. 
The rodent was a gift from the brother of the defendant. Whitmore was looking around again, primarily up. One black window seemed particularly to bother him, though Rhyme could have told him that snipers weren't the main risk. You would have thought that the brother would be a rather obvious suspect. But he seemed to believe he could get away with it. I sued him for intentional infliction of emotional distress. I wasn't actually that distressed, but I made a credible witness. The jury was rather sympathetic. I testified I had nightmares about rats. This was true, but the opposing counsel failed to ask when. The last time was when I was eight. Mr. Rhyme, did you hear that noise again? He nodded. Do you have a gun? The lawyer asked. Rhyme's expression as he turned toward Whitmore. Do I look like I'm a fast draw kind of person? Then more footsteps, growing closer. Cocking his head to the right, Rhyme whispered, He's coming from that direction. They remained still for a moment. There was a sound from where he'd just indicated. A click of metal. Chambering a bullet before the mugging? Or just planning to shoot and pilfer after they were dead? Time to leave, now. Rhyme gestured with his head and Whitmore nodded. Rhyme could move fast, if roughly, over the cobblestones toward one of the busy north-south avenues. He whispered Tom's number to Whitmore. Text him. Have him meet us a block north, Broadway. The lawyer did this and slipped his phone back into his pocket. With effort, he dragged Rhyme's heavy chair over the curb. Another whisper to Whitmore. He's close. Move. Fast. They started up the street, along the front of the office building. When they arrived at the corner and hurried past it, both men froze, staring directly into the muzzle of a pistol. Oh, my! Whitmore gasped. Lincoln Rhymes' response was more subdued. Sacks, what the hell are you doing here? Chapter 20 Rhyme watched his partner examining him and Whitmore with a perplexed frown for mere seconds before she slipped the blocky Austrian pistol back into the plastic holster with a definitive click. The frown vanished, and she turned to her right and called, Ron! Clear! Footsteps from around the corner. Rhyme watched Pulaski approach, also holstering his weapon. Lincoln! A curious glance at the lawyer. Rhyme introduced them. Pulaski blurted to Rhyme, What are you doing here? Just asking the same question, rookie. And the answer was soon clear, once he and Sachs explained what had brought them to the building on Ridge Street in Lower Manhattan on their respective missions. The victim of the unsub whom Sachs had been on the trail of for the past several weeks, Todd Williams, was in fact the man who'd posted the blog about the dangers of DataWise 5000 controllers. Since Rhyme was no longer doing criminal work, she'd never had reason to mention Williams's name. Sachs explained that she and Pulaski had run down a lead. The unsub had taken a car service from Queens to this area, and the driver had seen him go through the back door of this building about four hours before Williams's death. Rhyme said, Williams published a blog piece about the risks of a particular kind of Wi-Fi smart controller, the same type that we think malfunctioned in the escalator and probably caused the access panel to open. Since the widow can't sue the escalator manufacturer, they're in bankruptcy. We're considering a suit against the controller company. 
We were hoping Williams could be an expert witness, or at least tell us more about how the controllers could fail. But now... Sax asked. You thinking what I am? Yep. Your unsub reads Todd's blog about the controller, thinks it might be a nifty murder weapon for whatever reason. Contacts Todd, arranges to meet him here. Learns what he needs to so he can hack into the controller. Sachs continued the likely narrative. Then suggests they go to the club, 40 degrees north. But before they get there, he pulls Todd into the construction site and beats him to death with his hammer. Makes it look like a robbery. He killed him there rather than here to keep the investigation focused away from Williams's office. Whitmore said, I don't quite follow this, Mr. Rhyme. Rhyme said, Amelia was after the perp at the mall in Brooklyn. She assumed it was a coincidence that the escalator collapsed while she was there. Sachs added, But it wasn't. Looks like Unsub 40 knew how to hack the controller and opened the door intentionally. To cause a distraction and escape? Pulaski asked. When he saw you were after him? Rhyme's face tightened at the young man's flawed thinking. How would he know there was a data-wise controller in the escalator? Blushing, the young man said, Sure, sure, wasn't thinking. He'd have had it planned out ahead of time. He was at the mall to kill either somebody at random or Fromer in particular by popping open the access panel. Pulaski's Motorola crackled. He stepped aside to take the transmission. Sachs explained to Rhyme and Whitmore. The unsub was spotted here about 20 minutes ago. We called in backup. That's why the weapons. We thought you might be him when we heard you on the other side of the building. The young officer rejoined them. One car patrolling the neighborhood, others pulling up here. No sign of him yet. Rhyme said, any chance he's in the building? Homeless guy said he was standing at that intersection, Sachs said, nodding. He probably would have seen him if the unsub had come this way. Whitmore asked, but I'm curious, why would he come back here? Rhyme said, he might live nearby. The area was mostly commercial, but there were pockets of tenements and newer, that is, 75 or 80-year-old apartments. Or he's worried he didn't cover his tracks well enough and came back to look for evidence. He saw us and took off. She looked over the building. See if it's been broken into, Ron. He circled the structure and returned. Windows are intact, but the back door might have been jimmied. Scratch marks. Rhyme couldn't feel the thud in his insensate chest, but he knew this occurred from the rapid pulse in his forehead. You said to look for evidence, Sachs. He could also have come here to destroy it. She spun toward the building. It was at just that moment that there came a muffled whump from within the building. Whatever kind of incendiary device Unsub 40 had planted, it must have been quite large. Within seconds, smoke and flames began spiraling out of the ground floor windows, which had shattered from the heat. Rhyme caught a mouthful of smoke and ash, and coughing hard, he struggled to maneuver backward in his chair. Evers Whitmore helped him do so, kicking away a trash basket that was blocking the criminalist's escape. Ron Pulaski called dispatch to send the FDNY, and Amelia Sachs ran to the front door of the building, picked up a loose cobblestone and used it to smash through the glass of the door. She turned to Rhyme and shouted, What floor is the blogger's office on? Sachs, no, what floor? The top, he replied, still coughing hard. 
She turned and leapt inside, barely avoiding the points of glass that ringed the open doorway like shark's teeth. She's going in? Well, good fortune for me. My police girl, Red, the thief of White Castle, has no idea that it's five full gallons of low-octane gas pooling in flame in the basement. An ocean of flame. The building, dry as a California pine, won't last long. Will she? Will she last very long? I was going right back home to Chelsea in an internet cafe to send out a few emails. But I decided to stay. I'm looking out a hall window, fifth floor, of an abandoned tenement across the street and a few doors down. Bad for living in, good for spying. I crouch, shrinking, to watch what's unfolding below me. Can't see me here, none of them can, pretty sure. No, no one's looking up. Police cars are cruising, but looking on the streets and sidewalks only. They're thinking I've gone. Because who would wait around? Well, I would. To see who exactly it is after me. And to see who will crisp to death or suffocate, thanks to the gift I left. Smoke from the building is thick already, and thickening more. How can Red breathe? How can she see? Sirens can hear them. Fire engine intersection horns blaring. I love the sound, trumpeting pain and sorrow. If it goes as planned, all the tidbits of evidence I left behind in Todd's office, careless me, will be melted to nothing. I know from Francis Lee's crime scene dollhouses how telling evidence can be. Why, look how red put an end to my precious sliders. Burning it is best. Burnt to ash to dust. To greasy plastic smoke. And red? Myself, I never much cared for burning bones. It's not satisfying. Cracking them is better. But however she goes is good. Hair burned off, skin fat, then the bones fine. As long as she goes. A little pain wouldn't be a bad thing either. Smoke is curling up like a huge black pig's tail. Help will be here soon. But the fire's progressing nicely. I'm not close to the raging inferno, but not too far either. Maybe I'll hear her screams. Unlikely. But one can always hope. Chapter 21 Smoke is wet. Smoke is scaly. Smoke is a creature that slides into your body and strangles from within. Amelia Sachs was squinting through the white, then brown, then black clouds as she charged up the stairs to the top floor of the building, dying of fire in its low heart. She had to get inside the blogger's office. If the unsub had gone to such lengths to destroy the place, that meant there was evidence inside, something that would lead to him or to future victims. Go, she told herself, wretched, spat, and said the command out loud. The door was locked, of course, which was why he'd started the fire in the basement, more accessible than the room he needed to destroy. She tested the door with her shoulder. No, breaking in wasn't going to happen. You can breach a door with crowbars, battering rams, and special shotgun slugs, aiming for the hinges only. You can't shoot out a lock. But you can't kick in most wooden doors. So she'd float like an angel, 
As smoke ganged around her, heat too, she stumbled to the window in the hallway and kicked this one out too. Unlike the door downstairs, which left jagged shards, the window here vanished into cascading splinters, opening a wide entrance into the void. Cool air rushed past her. She inhaled deeply, relieved at the oxygen, but from the suddenly increasing roar behind her, she realized she'd just fed the inferno as well. She looked out and down. Not a wide sidewalk of a ledge, but sufficient. And the window into the blogger's office was a mere five or six feet away from the open rectangle Sachs now climbed into. She was luxuriating in the clean air, sucking it voluptuously into her stinging lungs. She glanced down to the ground. Nobody beneath her. This was the back of the building, opposite from where Rhyme and the others were waiting, and, she hoped, the fire department was arriving to squelch the flames. Yes, she heard sirens, but silently commanded them, get closer if you don't mind. Looking behind her, the billows of smoke were growing denser, coughing and retching. God, her chest hurt. So, onto the ledge. Sax's animal fear was claustrophobia, not heights, yet she was in no hurry to tumble fifty feet to slick cobblestones. The ledge was a good eight inches wide, and she had to traverse only two yards to get to Williams's office. Better without shoes, but she'd have to break that window too to get inside and litter the floor with razors. Keep the footwear. Go. No time. Her phone was ringing. Not hardly answering at the moment. Onto the ledge, gripping the window frame and turning to face the building's exterior wall. She then eased to her right, weight on her toes, fingers digging into the seams between the soot-stained stones. Cramps radiated through her wrists. From within the building, a groan. Something structural was failing. How bad an idea was this? Not a question to be asking at the moment. One yard, then the second, and she arrived at Williams's window. Inside, there was a faint patina of smoke, but visibility seemed good. Placing her hands on the side of the frame, gripping hard, she eased back her knee and kicked. The pain shattered into a thousand pieces, littering the floor in the tiny dim office. Getting inside, however, was trickier than she'd thought. A center of gravity issue. Lowering her head and shoulders to duck in sent her rear into the void, and that started to tilt her backward. Nope. At least her hands had good purchase on the frame. The parts where no glass remained. Try sideways. Angling to her right, easing her left leg in, and then shifting her weight to that limb. Sachs reached inside, seeking something to grip. A metal square, a file cabinet, she guessed. Smooth, no handle. She could feel only the side of the furniture. But recalling a Discovery Channel or some such show about rock climbing, she pictured free climbers working their fingers into the tiniest of crevices and supporting their full weight. She moved her hand to the back of the cabinet wedged fingers between metal and the wall, and started to shift her weight inside. Tipping point. A few inches, balanced. Push, now. Sax tumbled inside, falling on the glass-encrusted floor. No cuts. Well, none serious. She felt a bit of sting in her knee, the joint that had tormented with arthritic pain until the surgery. Now the ache was back, thanks to the fall. But she rose and tested. The mechanism functioned. 
She glanced at the smoke rolling inside from under the door. The whole office now felt hot. Could the flames have risen this fast and be roasting the oak under her feet? She coughed hard, found an unopened bottle of Deer Park, unscrewed the cap and chugged, spat again. Scanning fast, Sachs noted three file cabinets, shelves filled with paper in all forms, magazines, newspapers, printouts, pamphlets, all extremely combustible, she noted. Riffling, she saw they were mostly generic articles about the dangers of data mining, government intrusion into privacy, identity theft. She didn't immediately see anything related to the controllers Rhyme and Whitmore had been talking about, or anything else that might have motivated their unsub to murder Williams, nor evidence he might have left. In the corner, flames teased their way out from under a baseboard and ignited a bookshelf. Across the room, another tongue of fire lapped at a cardboard box and with no delay at all, set it on fire. The building groaned again, and the door began to sweat varnish. Gasped at another sound. The window opposite the one she'd climbed through, the front of the building, crashed inward. In a lick of a second, her glock was out, though the draw was mere instinct. She knew the intruder wasn't a threat but was in fact what she'd counted on for salvation all along. Sachs nodded to the New York City firefighter, perched nonchalantly on a ladder connected to a truck 40-some-odd feet below. The woman guided the top of the ladder to a hover about two feet from the windowsill. She called, Building's gonna drop, detective, you leave now. If she'd had an hour, she might have parsed the documents and found something relevant that might lead to the unsub's motive, victim's past and victim's future, his identity. She did the only thing available, though, grabbed the laptop computer, ripped out the power cord, and with no time to unscrew the wires connecting it to the monitor, sliced the unit free with her switchblade. Leave that, the FDNY firefighter said through her mask. Can't, Sachs said and hurried to the window. Need both your hands! Shouting was required now. The building moaned as its bones snapped. But Sachs kept her arm around the computer and clambered out onto the ladder, gripping with her right hand only. Her legs scissored around one side and another rung. Every muscle in her body, it seemed, was cramping. But still she held on. The operator below maneuvered them away from the building. The office room Sachs had been in just seconds before was suddenly awash with flame. Thanks, Sachs called. The woman was either deaf to her words because of the roar or was pissed that Sachs had ignored her warning. There was no response. The ladder retracted. They were twenty feet above the ground when it jerked and Sachs finally had to release the computer to keep from plunging to the street. The laptop spun to the sidewalk and cracked open, raining bits of plastic and keys in a dozen different directions. An hour later, Lincoln Rhyme and Juliet Archer were at one of the evidence tables. Mel Cooper was nearby. Evers Whitmore stood in the corner, juggling two calls on two mobiles. They were awaiting the evidence from the burned-out building. The structure was completely gone. It had collapsed into a pile of smoldering stone and melted plastic, glass, and metal. Sachs had ordered a backhoe to excavate, and Rhyme hoped something of the incendiary device might remain. As for the computer, 
Ron Pulaski had taken it downtown to the NYPD Computer Crimes Unit at 1PP in hopes that Sachs's mad vertical dash hadn't been in vain. Rodney Sarnik would determine if any data on the laptop was salvageable. The front door now opened, and another figure walked into the parlor. Amelia Sachs's face was smudged, her hair askew, and she wore two bandages, presumably covering cuts from broken glass. It seemed she'd taken out at least three pains in her dramatic break-in of Williams's office. Rhyme was actually surprised she wasn't more badly hurt. He wasn't happy she'd ignored him and taken the risk, but they'd fallen into an unspoken agreement years ago. She pushed herself to extremes, and that was just who she was. When you move, they can't get you. An expression of her father's, and it was her motto in life. Sachs carried a small milk crate containing evidence from the building. Very little, however, as was often the case when a scene is destroyed by flames. A bout of coughing. Tears ran. Sachs, you okay? Rhyme asked. She'd refused a trip to the emergency room and remained at the scorched site to excavate and to walk the grid as soon as the fire department gave the all clear while Rhyme, Whitmore, and Tom had returned to his townhouse here. A little smoke. Nothing. More coughing. She glanced wryly at Mel Cooper. You look just like somebody who works for the NYPD. The tech blushed. She handed the crate to Cooper, who examined the bags. That's it? That's it. He stepped to the chromatograph and began running the analysis. Sachs, wiping her eyes, was looking over at Juliet Archer. Rhyme realized they'd never met. He introduced them. Archer said, I've heard a lot about you. Sachs nodded a greeting rather than offering a hand, of course. You're the intern Lincoln mentioned was going to be helping out. Rhyme supposed he'd never mentioned that Archer was in a wheelchair. In fact, he believed he'd never told Sachs anything about his student, even the name or sex. Sachs looked briefly at Rhyme, a cryptic glance, perhaps chiding, perhaps not. And then to Archer, nice to meet you. Whitmore disconnected from one, then another call. Detective Sachs, you sure you're all right? Nothing, really. The lawyer said, Never thought when I got a call about taking on a personal injury lawsuit it would turn out like this. Rhyme said to Sachs, So your case and our case, they're one and the same. Often misstated as one in the same, by the way. From his perch near the gas chromatograph mass spectrometer, Mel Cooper said, I don't quite follow what's going on. Rhyme explained about unsub-40s reading Todd Williams's blog and deciding to tap him for help and hacking a data-wise controller to turn it into a weapon. He says we can guess he wants to help Williams expose the dangers of these things. Down with digital society, capitalism, bullshit like that. Rhyme nodded to the blog post, still on one of the monitors. Williams teaches the unsub how to hack the system, and the unsub kills him. He's expendable. Archer added, He's also a liability. A news story about the escalator accident might mention the controller in the press. Williams would know who was behind it. Rhyme nodded and continued. Amelia's after him in Brooklyn and follows him into the mall where he's going to kill his first victim. Archer asked, How do we know it's his first victim? A reasonable question. But Rhyme said, Williams was killed just a few weeks ago, 
and I don't recall any suspicious product-related deaths in the news. We may find more, but for now let's assume the escalator was the first. The question is, was it a one-off, or does he have more planned? And why? the lawyer asked. What's his motive? Using a controller to kill? It has to be a lot of trouble, Rhyme added, and it's a lot riskier. At the same time, as Archer said, and he's more at risk. The criminalist grunted a laugh. Well, we don't know why, and we don't particularly care. When we catch him, we can ask. When the hell is the computer going to be ready? Ron said it should be within the hour. And where the hell is the rookie? Rhyme muttered. That other case, Gutierrez, I think he mentioned. I think so. Was Gutierrez the killer or Killy? Sack said. Perp, I don't know why it's heated up. Well, we'll make do. Which brought Sax's attention to bear on rhyme. Do you mean that? What? Not understanding at all what she was getting at. We'll make do? Are you going to help us? It's criminal now. Of course I will. A faint smile on her face. Rhyme said, I don't have any choice. We get the unsub, then Sandy Fromer can sue him for wrongful death. Rhyme recalled what Whitmore had said about intervening causes. The controller itself wasn't the cause of Greg Fromer's death. It was unsub 40's hacking that had killed him. It was like someone's cutting the brake lines of a car killing the driver. The car manufacturer wasn't liable. A look at the lawyer. Sandy will be able to sue the unsub, right? Of course. The O.J. Simpson scenario. If we're lucky, this individual, your unsub, has assets. I'm not unretiring, Sax. But our paths coincide for a while. The smile faded. Sure. Mel Cooper tested the evidence Sax had found. He asked, Site of origin? Right. Arson produces very distinct patterns as flames start and spread. It's at the origin site that investigators can expect to find the best evidence about the perp. He read from the GCMS monitor. Traces of wax, low-octane gasoline, not enough to link it to a particular maker, and cotton, plastic, matches, candle bomb. Right. A simple improvised explosive device can be made from a jug of gasoline using a candle as a fuse. Cooper confirmed that the trace was so minimal he couldn't source any of the other ingredients in the unsub's IED, as Rhyme had suspected. Sachs got another call, coughed a bit before taking it. Hello? Nodding, listening. Thanks. It wasn't good news, Rhyme could tell. She finished up the call and turned to the others in the room. Full canvas of the neighborhood. No one saw him. He must have left just after setting the bomb. A shrug. Nothing other than Rhyme had expected. A moment later, another call. Rodney Sarnick's name flashed onto caller ID. Ah, let's hope for the best. Answer, Rhyme commanded. The rock music was back, but only momentarily. Before Rhyme could say, shut the damn music off, please, the officer downed the volume. Lincoln, Rodney, you're on speaker here with... A bunch of people, no time for roll call. Was Todd Williams's computer salvageable? A pause, which Rhyme took to be one of surprise. Well, sure, a fall like that is nothing. You can drop a computer out of an airplane and the data'll survive. 
black boxes, you know. What do you have? Looks like the relationship between this Williams and your unsub is recent. I found some emails between them. I'll send them to you. A moment later, a secure email popped up on the screen. They read the first of the attachments accompanying it. Hello, Todd. I read your blog, and I feel the same way. What society is coming to is not good, and electronics and the digital world are making it a much more dangerous place than it needs to be. There has to be some way to change the system. Money is the root of it, of course, as you suggest. I would like to try to help in your cause. Can we meet? P.G. Archer said, Ah, we have initials. Maybe, Rhyme said. Go on, Rodney. Sarnik continued. Your unsub used an anonymous email account, logged in from an untraceable IP. They set up a meeting for the day of the murder. Cooper looked over the email. Not particularly smart. Look at the mistakes, commas, and homonyms. Y-O-U apostrophe R-E instead of your and their, too. Rhyme corrected. Heteronyms. Same pronunciation, different spelling and meaning. Homonyms have the same pronunciation and same spelling, but different meaning. Staring at the screen, Archer provided the classic example. Bark. What a dog does and a covering on a tree. Homonym. She then added, But I don't think he's stupid. I think he's pretending to be. Run-on sentences, the heteronyms, they're obvious. But he uses the clause, as you suggest, correctly, not like you suggest. Rhyme agreed. And the infinitive after to try. It's non-standard to say try and. You should say try to. And using then for than would have been flagged by most usage checkers, even on a basic phone. No, you're right, he's faking. Sarnik broke in with, Now for the big find. The most troubling find. Whitmore asked, Which is what, Mr. Sarnik? For hours before the murder, while Todd and your unsub were meeting, I assume, Todd was online. He did two things. First, he bought a database. He bought it from a commercial data miner. He spoofed he was an ad agency, used a real one with an account he'd hacked, and he claimed he needed the information for market research. It was a laundry list of the products that DataWise 5000 controllers are found in. How many? A lot. About 800 different products. Nearly 3 million units shipped to the northeast of the U.S., including the New York metro area. Some couldn't do any real harm if a third party took control. Computers, printers, lights. Others could be deadly. Cars, trains, elevators, defibs, heart monitors, pacemakers, microwaves, ovens, power tools, furnaces, cranes. The big ones used in construction work and on docks. I'd guess 60% of them could be dangerous. And the second thing he bought a database of purchasers of those products. Some are other equipment manufacturers, like Midwest Conveyance. Others are individual consumers who bought smart appliances, names and addresses. Again, New York and Northeast mostly. Archer asked, That's available? That information? Another pause. Perhaps this was one of astonishment. Data mining, Ms. Archer. You have no idea what aggregators know about you. The data collection is why when you buy, in this case, a smart stove, you start getting direct mail ads for other products that might be cloud-oriented. By buying the stove, you've declared yourself to be in a certain demographic. 
So he simply browses through the lists and finds a dangerous product with a data-wise inside, like the escalator. He hacks in and waits so that, if he's a decent monster, it's not a child or pregnant woman riding to the second floor and pushes the button? Sachs asked. How did he hack it? It can't have been that easy. No pause this time, just a laugh. Well, okay. About the Internet of Things, a phrase I completely detest, but there it is. Can I give you a brief lesson? I like the brief part, Rodney. Smart products from household lights all the way up to the ones I just mentioned are, quote, embedded with wireless connectivity circuits. Rhyme recalled this from Williams's blog. Now, embedded devices use special protocols, rules, let's call them, 